Edidorpa, Extended Edition, or The End of the Earth, by John Uri Lloyd, narrated by Graham Dunlop, audio editing by Darren Grimes. The Strange History of a Mysterious Being and the Account of a Remarkable Journey as communicated in manuscript to Llewellyn Drury, who promised to print the same but finally evaded the responsibility which was assumed by John Uri Lloyd, with many illustrations by J. Augustus Knapp. Introduction and Biographic Note on the Author John Uri Lloyd, April 19, 1849 to April 9, 1936, was born in Bloomfield, upstate New York, United States, son of teachers Sophia Webster and Nelson Marvin Lloyd. In 1853, his family relocated to Florence and Petersburg in northern Kentucky, near Cincinnati, Ohio. Since early age, he showed himself enthusiastic about science, particularly chemistry. This is how, at age 14, he took an apprenticeship with chemist William J. M. Gordon and he would study with George Eager. His younger brothers, Nelson Ashley Lloyd and Curtis Gates Lloyd, also studied chemistry. In 1886, the three brothers bought the Maryland Thorpe Company, renaming it as Lloyd Brothers Pharmacist, Inc. Lloyd was a very influential chemist and pharmacist at his time, writing for several publications as well as publishing his own studies in several books. He was an entrepreneur, investigator, writer, Professor, as he was also an inventor, he patented the cold still extractor, which was used from the 1940s to the 1970s to extract ingredients from plant materials and to distill volatile oils, perfumes, and essences from natural materials. Another invention was the first buffered alkaloid, made with hydrous aluminum silicates called Alcresta. His studies contributed to the development of pharmacognosy, ethnobotany, economic botany, and herbal medicine. He was part of eclectic medicine, a branch of American medicine which made use of botanical remedies, along with other substances and physical therapy practices. He was awarded with the Ebert Prize by the American Pharmacists Association on three occasions, 1882, 1891, and 1916. He was an avid book collector, and people started to send him copies for his library. This is how he affirms to have received the manuscript which forms at Adorpa. With this collection ever growing, he founded, together with his brothers, the Lloyd Library and Museum in 1919, dedicated mostly to the works in botany, pharmacy, natural history, medicine, scientific history, and visual arts. This institution is still open and is considered one of Cincinnati's hidden treasures. Also to note that Lloyd's house in Cincinnati was added to the National Register of Historical Places in 1973. Proving to be a true eclectic, he also wrote fiction, being this at Adorpa, his first published work. It first appeared on 1895 and was re-edited several times and later translated to German and Swedish in modern times. After 2000, was translated to Portuguese and Spanish, this one by yours truly. Lloyd wrote more fiction in a realist vein, but this, at Adorpa, 
is the one that transcended the most traveling through time as a cult book, speculations about its veracity and its fiction, as a study about its scientific affirmations as much as its metaphysical hypothesis. And at the same time, this is also an early science fiction story about mystery and exploration in all the sense of these words, offering a multi-layered interpretation. My first edition of this book was the Spanish translation that I made, but watching the different English versions available, I decided to make my own. I rearranged the extras, that Adorpa is left intact, the contents page, and made some small corrections. I also added an article about the real I am the man, the main protagonist. The extended parts of this edition are chapters 44, 45, and 46, which were originally included in a 1901 edition at the end of the book. Here I decided to put them where they would have originally belonged. I also added a couple of alternative illustrations that were present in different editions of Edadorpa. Besides, a new appendix about the incomplete sequel of this work. I hope you enjoy this reading and find it as thought-provoking as I did. Lissandro Cote, Nighttime Editions Ascription To Professor W. H. Venable, who reviewed the manuscript of this work, I am indebted for many valuable suggestions, and I call not to speak too kindly of him as a critic. The illustrations, excepting those mechanical and historical, making in themselves a beautiful narrative without words, are due to the admirable artistic conceptions and touch of Mr. J. Augustus Knapp. Structural imperfections as well as word selections and phrases that break all rules in composition, and that the care even of Professor Venable could not eradicate, I accept as wholly my own. For much on the one hand, that it may seem, should have been excluded, and on the other, for giving place to ideas nearer to empiricism than to science, I am also responsible. For vexing my friends with problems that seemingly do not concern ill the least men in my position, and for venturing to think superficially it may be, outside the restricted lines of a science bound to the unresponsive crucible and retort, to which my life has been given, and amid the problems of which it has nearly worn itself away, I have no plausible excuse, and shall seek none. John, Yuri, Lloyd Preface Books are as tombstones made by the living for the living, but destined soon only to remind us of the dead. The preface, like an epitaph, seems vainly to implore the passing tributes of a moment's interest. No man is allured by either a grave inscription or a preface, unless it be accompanied by that ineffable charm which age casts over mortal productions. Libraries, in one sense, represent cemeteries, and the rows of silent volumes with their dim titles suggest burial tablets, many of which, alas, mark only cenotaphs, empty tombs. A modern book, no matter how talented the author, carries with it a familiar personality which may often be treated with neglect or even contempt. But a volume a century old demands some reverence. A vellum-bound or hogskin print or antique yellow parchment, two, three, five hundred years old, regardless of its contents, impresses one with an indescribable feeling, 
akin to awe and veneration, as does the wheat from an Egyptian tomb, even though it only be wheat. We take such a work from the shelf carefully and replace it gently. While the productions of modern writers are handled familiarly, as men living jostle men yet alive, those of authors long dead are touched as though clutched by a hand from the unseen world. The reader feels that a phantom form opposes his own, and that spectral eyes scan the pages as he turns them. The stern face, the penetrating eye of the personage whose likeness forms the frontispiece of the yellowed volume in my hand, speak across the gulf of two centuries and bid me beware. The title page is read with reverence, and the great tome is replaced with care, for an almost superstitious sensation bids me to be cautious and not offend. Let those who presume to criticize the intellectual productions of such men be careful. In a few days the dead will face their censors, dead. Standing in a library of antiquated works, one senses the shadows of a cemetery. Each volume adds to the oppression. Each old tome casts the influence of its spirit over the beholder. For have not these old books spirits? The earth grave covers the mind as well as the body of its moldering occupant, and while only a strong imagination can assume that a spirit hovers over and lingers around inanimate clay, here each title is a voice that speaks as though the heart of its creator still throbbed, the mind essence of the dead writer envelops the living reader. Take down that vellum-bound volume. It was written in one of the centuries long past. The pleasant face of its creator, as fresh as if but from a print of yesterday, smiles upon you from the exquisitely engraved copper-plate frontispiece. The mind of the author rises from out the words before you. This man is not dead, and his comrades live. Turn to the shelves about, before each book stands a guardian spirit. Together they form a phantom army that, invisible to mortals, encircles the beholder. Ah, this antique library is not, as is a church graveyard, only a cemetery for the dead. It is also a mansion for the living. These alcoves are trysting places for elemental shades. Essences of disenthralled minds meet here and revel. Thoughts of the past take shape and live in this atmosphere. Who can say that pulsations unperceived beyond the reach of physics or of chemistry are not as ethereal mind seeds which although unseen yet in living brain, exposed to such an atmosphere as this, formulate embryonic thought expressions destined to become energetic intellectual forces. I sit in such a weird library and meditate. The shades of grim authors whisper in my ear. Skeleton forms oppose my own, and phantoms possess the gloomy alcoves of the library I am building. With the object of carrying to the future a section of thought current from the past, the antiquarian libraries of many nations have been culled, and purchases made in every book market of the world. These books surround me. Naturally, many persons have become interested in the movement, and considering it a worthy one, unite to further the project, for the purpose is not personal gain. Thus it is not unusual for boxes of old chemical or pharmacal volumes to arrive by freight or express, without a word as to the donor. The mail brings manuscripts unprinted and pamphlets recondite, with no word of introduction. 
They come unheralded. The authors or the senders realize that in this unique library, a place is vacant if any work on connected subjects is missing. And thinking men of the world are uniting their contributions to fill such vacancies. Enough has been said concerning the ancient library that has bred these reflections, and my own personality does not concern the reader. He can now formulate his conclusions as well, perhaps, as I, regarding the origin of the manuscript that is to follow. If he concerns himself at all over subjects mysterious or historical, and my connection therewith is of minor importance, whether Mr. Drury brought the strange paper in person, or sent it by express or mail, whether it was slipped into a box of books from foreign lands, or whether my hand held the pen that made the record, whether I stood face to face with Mr. Drury in the shadows of this room, or have but a fanciful conception of his figure, whether the artist drew upon his imagination for the vivid likeness of the several personages figured in the book that follows, or from reliable data that has given facsimiles authentic, is immaterial. Sufficient be it to say that the manuscript of this book has been in my possession for a period of seven years, and my lips must now be sealed concerning all that transpired in connection therewith, outside the subject matter recorded therein. And yet I cannot deny that for these seven years I have hesitated concerning my proper course, and more than once have decided to cover from sight the fascinating leaflets hide them among surrounding volumes and let them slumber until chance should bring them to the attention of the future student. These thoughts rise before me this gloomy day of December, 1894, as snatching a moment from the exactions of business I sit among these old volumes devoted to science lore, and again study over the unique manuscript and meditate. I hesitate again. Shall I, or shall I not? But a duty is a duty. Perhaps the mysterious part of the subject will be cleared to me only when my own thought words come to rest among these venerable relics of the past, when books that I have written become companions of ancient works about me, for then I can claim relationship with the shadows that flit in and out, and can demand that they, the ghosts of the library, Commune with the shade that guards the book that holds this preface. John Yuri Lloyd Prologue My name was Johannes Llewellyn Longolin Drury. I was named Llewellyn at my mother's desire out of respect to her father, Dr. Evan Llewellyn, the scientist and speculative philosopher well known to curious students as the author of various rare works on occult subjects. The other given names were ancestral also, but when I reached the age of appreciation, they naturally became distasteful. So it is that in early youth I dropped the first and third of these cumbersome words and retained only the second Christian name. While perhaps the reader of these lines may regard this cognomen with less favor than either of the others, still I liked it and as it was the favorite of my mother, who always used the name in full, the world, however, contracted Llewellyn to Lou, much to the distress of my dear mother, who felt aggrieved at the liberty. After her death, I decided to move to a western city, and also determined out of respect to her memory to select from and rearrange the letters of my several names, and construct therefrom three short, terse words, 
which would convey to myself only the resemblance of my former name. Hence it is that the Cincinnati Directory does not record my self-selected name, which I have no reason to bring before the public. To the reader, my name is Llewellyn Drury. I might add that my ancestors were among the early settlers of what is now New York City, and were direct descendants of the early Welsh kings, but these matters do not concern the reader, and it is not of them that I now choose to write. My object in putting down these preliminary paragraphs is simply to assure the reader of such facts, and such only, as may give him confidence in my personal sincerity and responsibility, in order that he may with a right understanding read the remarkable statements that occur in the succeeding chapters. The story I am about to relate is very direct, and some parts of it are very strange, not to say marvelous, but not on account of its strangeness alone do I ask for the narrative a reading. That were mere trifling. What is here set down happened as recorded, but I shall not attempt to explain things which even to myself are enigmatical. Let the candid reader read the story as I have told it, and make out of it what he can, or let him pass the page by unread. I shall not insist on claiming his further attention. Only, if he does read, I beg him to read with an open mind, without prejudice, and without predilection. Who or what I am as a participant in this work is of small importance. I mention my history only for the sake of frankness and fairness. I have nothing to gain by issuing the volume. Neither do I court praise nor shun censure. My purpose is to tell the truth. Early in the fifties I took up my residence in the Queen City, and though a very young man found the employment ready that a friend had obtained for me with a manufacturing firm engaged in a large and complicated business. My duties were varied and peculiar, of such a nature as to tax body and mind to the utmost and for several years I served in the most exacting of business details. Besides the labor which my vocation entailed, with its manifold and multiform perplexities, I voluntarily imposed upon myself other tasks, which I pursued in the privacy of my own bachelor apartments. An inherited love for books, on abstruse and occult subjects, probably in part the result of my blood connection with Dr. Evan Llewellyn, caused me to collect a unique library largely on mystical subjects in which I took the keenest delight. My business and my professional duties by day and my studies at night made my life a busy one. In the midst of my work and reading I encountered the character whose strange story forms the essential part of the following narrative. I may anticipate by saying that the manuscript of follow only incidentally concerns myself and that if possible I would relinquish all connection therewith. It recites the physical, mental, and moral adventures of one whose life history was abruptly thrust upon my attention, and as abruptly interrupted. The vicissitudes of his body and soul, circumstances seem to compel me to learn and to make public. Prologue my name was Johannes Llewellyn Longolin Drury. I was named Llewellyn at my mother's desire out of respect to her father, Dr. Evan Llewellyn, the scientist and speculative philosopher, well known to curious students as the author of various rare works on occult subjects. The other given names were ancestral also, 
But when I reached the age of appreciation, they naturally became distasteful. So it is that in early youth I dropped the first and third of these cumbersome words and retained only the second Christian name. While perhaps the reader of these lines may regard this cognomen with less favor than either of the others, still I liked it. And as it was the favorite of my mother, who always used the name in full, the world, however, contracted Llewellyn to Lou, much to the distress of my dear mother, who felt aggrieved at the liberty. After her death, I decided to move to a western city, and also determined out of respect to her memory to select from and rearrange the letters of my several names and construct therefrom three short, terse words, which would convey to myself only the resemblance of my former name. Hence it is that the Cincinnati Directory does not record my self-selected name, which I have no reason to bring before the public. To the reader, my name is Llewellyn Drury. I might add that my ancestors were among the early settlers of what is now New York City and were direct descendants of the early Welsh kings, but these matters do not concern the reader, and it is not of them that I now choose to write. My object in putting down these preliminary paragraphs is simply to assure the reader of such facts, and such only, as may give him confidence in my personal sincerity and responsibility in order that he may with a right understanding read the remarkable statements that occur in the succeeding chapters. The story I am about to relate is very direct, and some parts of it are very strange, not to say marvelous, but not on account of its strangeness alone do I ask for the narrative a reading. That were mere trifling. What is here set down happened as recorded. I shall not attempt to explain things which even to myself are enigmatical. Let the candid reader read the story as I have told it, and make out of it what he can, or let him pass the page by unread. I shall not insist on claiming his further attention. Only if he does read, I beg him to read with an open mind, without prejudice, and without predilection. Who or what I am as a participant in this work is of small importance. I mention my history only for the sake of frankness and fairness. I have nothing to gain by issuing the volume. Neither do I court praise nor shun censure. My purpose is to tell the truth. Early in the fifties I took up my residence in the Queen City, and though a very young man found the employment ready that a friend had obtained for me with a manufacturing firm engaged in a large and complicated business. My duties were varied and peculiar of such a nature as to tax body and mind to the utmost, and for several years I served in the most exacting of business details. Besides the labor which my vocation entailed, with its manifold and multiform perplexities, I voluntarily imposed upon myself other tasks, which I pursued in the privacy of my own bachelor apartments. An inherited love for books on abstruse and occult subjects probably in part the result of my blood connection with Dr. Evan Llewellyn, caused me to collect a unique library largely on mystical subjects, in which I took the keenest delight. My business and my professional duties by day and my studies at night made my life a busy one. In the midst of my work and reading I encountered the character whose strange story forms the essential part of the following narrative. I may anticipate by saying that the manuscript of follow only incidentally concerns myself, and that if possible I would relinquish all connection therewith. 
It recites the physical, mental, and moral adventures of one whose life history was abruptly thrust upon my attention, and as abruptly interrupted. The vicissitudes of his body and soul, circumstances seemed to compel me to learn and to make public. Chapter 1 Never Less Alone Than When Alone More than thirty years ago occurred the first of the series of remarkable events I am about to relate. The exact date I cannot recall, but it was in November, and to those familiar with November weather in the Ohio Valley, it is hardly necessary to state that the month is one of possibilities. That is to say, it is liable to bring every variety of weather from the delicious, dreamy Indian summer days that linger late in the fall, to a combination of rain, hail, snow, sleet, in short, atmospheric conditions sufficiently aggravating to develop a suicidal mania in any one the least susceptible to such influences. While the general character of the month is much the same the country over, showing dull grey tones of sky, abundant rains that penetrate man as they do the earth, cold, shifting winds, that search the very marrow, it is always safe to count more or less upon the probability of the unexpected throughout the month. The particular day which ushered in the event about to be chronicled was one of these possible heterogeneous days presenting a combination of sunshine, shower, and snow, with winds that rang all through the changes from balmy to blustery, a morning air of caloric and an evening of numbing cold. The early morning started fair and sunny. Later came light showers, suddenly switched by shifting winds into blinding sleet, until the middle of the afternoon found the four winds and all the elements commingled in one wild orgy with clashing and roaring, as of a great organ with all the stops out, and all the storm fiends dancing over the keyboards. Nightfall brought some semblance of order to the sounding chaos but still kept up the wild music of a typical November day, with every accompaniment of bleakness, gloom, and desolation. Thousands of chimneys exhaling murky clouds of bituminous soot all day had covered the city with the proverbial pall which the winds in their sport had shifted hither and yon. But as thoroughly tired out, they subsided into silence. The smoky mesh suddenly settled over the houses and into the streets taking possession of the city and contributing to the melancholy wretchedness of such of the inhabitants as had to be out of doors. Through the smoke the red sun, when visible, had dragged his downward course in manifest discouragement, and the hastening twilight soon gave place to the blackness of darkness. Night reigned supreme. Thirty years ago, electric lighting was not in vogue, and the system of street lamps was far less complete than at present. Although the gas burned in them may not have been any worse, the lamps were much fewer and farther between, and the light which they emitted had a feeble, sickly aspect, and did not reach any distant into the moist and murky atmosphere. And so the night was dismal enough, and the few people upon the street were visible only as they passed directly beneath the lamps, or in front of lighted windows, seeming at other times like moving shadows against a black ground. As I am like to be conspicuous in these pages, it may be proper to say that I am very susceptible to atmospheric influences. I figure among my friends as a man of quiet disposition, but I am at times morose, although I endeavor to conceal this fact from others. My nervous system is a sensitive weather glass, 
Sometimes I fancy that I must have been born under the planet Saturn, for I find myself unpleasantly influenced by moods ascribed to that depressing planet, more especially in its disagreeable phases. For I regret to state that I do not find corresponding elation as I should in its brighter aspects. I have an especial dislike for wintry weather, a dislike which I find growing with my years, until it has developed almost into positive antipathy and dread. On the day I have described, my moods had varied with the weather. The fitfulness of the winds had found its way into my feelings, and the somber tone of the clouds into my meditations. I was restless as the elements, and a deep sense of dissatisfaction with myself and everything else possessed me. I could not content myself in any place or position. Reading was distasteful, writing equally so, but it occurred to me that a brisk walk for a few blocks might afford relief. Muffling myself up in my overcoat and fur cap, I took the street, only to find the air gusty and raw, and I gave up in still greater disgust in returning home after drawing the curtains and locking the doors, planted myself in front of a glowing grate fire, firmly resolved to rid myself of myself by resorting to the oblivion of thought, reverie, or dream. To sleep was impossible, and I sat moodily in an easy chair, noting the quarter-and-a-half-hour strokes as they were chimed out sweetly from the spire of St. Peter's Cathedral a few blocks away. Nine o'clock passed with its silver-voiced song of Home, Sweet Home. Ten, and then eleven strokes of the ponderous bell which noted the hours, roused me to a strenuous effort to shake off the feelings of despondency, unrest, and turbulence that all combined to produce a state of mental and physical misery now insufferable. Rising suddenly from my chair without a conscious effort, I walked mechanically to a bookcase, seized the volume at random repeated myself before the fire, and opened the book. It proved to be an odd, neglected volume, Riley's Dictionary of Latin Quotations. At the moment there flashed upon me a conscious duality of existence. Had the old book some mesmeric power? I seemed to myself two persons, and I quickly said aloud as if addressing my double, If I cannot quiet you, turbulent spirit, I can at least adapt myself to your condition. I will read this book haphazard from bottom to top, or backward if necessary, and if this does not change the subject often enough, I will try Noah Webster. Opening the book mechanically at page 297, I glanced at the bottom line and read, Nunquam minus solus quam cum solus, never less alone than when alone. These words arrested my thoughts at once, as by a singular chance they seemed to fit my mood. Was it or was it not some conscious invisible intelligence that caused me to select that page and brought the apothegm to my notice? Again, like a flash, came the consciousness of duality, and I began to argue with my other self. This is errant nonsense, I cried out, even though Cicero did say it, and it is on par with many other delusive maxims that have for so many years embittered the existence of our modern youth by misleading thought. Do you know, Mr. Cicero, that this statement is not sound? That it is unworthy the position you occupy in history as a thinker and philosopher? That it is a contradiction in itself? For if a man is alone, he is alone, and that settles it. 
I mused in this vein a few moments, and then resumed out loud. It won't do. It won't do. If one is alone, the word is absolute. He is single, isolated, in short, alone. And there can be no manner of possibility be anyone else present. Take myself, for instance. I am the sole occupant of this apartment. I am alone, and yet you can say in so many words that I was never less alone than at this instant. It was not without some misgiving that I uttered these words, for the strange consciousness of my own duality constantly grew stronger, and I could not shake off the reflection that even now there were two of myself in the room, and that I was not so much alone as I endeavored to convince myself. This feeling oppressed me like an incubus. I must throw it off, and rising, I tossed the book upon the table, exclaiming, What folly! I'm alone! Positively, there is no other living thing, visible or invisible, in the room. I hesitated as I spoke, for the strange, undefined sensation that I was not alone had become almost a conviction. But the sound of my voice encouraged me, and I determined to discuss the subject, and I remarked in a full, strong voice, I am surely alone. I know I am. Why, I will wager everything I possess, even to my soul, that I am alone. I stood facing the smoldering embers of the fire which I had neglected to replenish, uttering these words to settle the controversy for good and all with one person of my dual self. But the other ego seemed to dissent violently when a soft, clear voice claimed my ear. You have lost your wager. You are not alone. I turned instantly towards the direction of the sound, and to my amazement saw a white-haired man seated on the opposite side of the room, gazing at me with the utmost composure. I am not a coward, nor a believer in ghosts or illusions, and yet that sight froze me where I stood. It had no supernatural appearance. On the contrary, was a plain, ordinary flesh-and-blood man. But the weather, the experiences of the day, the weird, inclement night, had all conspired to strain my nerves to the highest point of tension, and I trembled from head to foot. Noting this, the stranger said pleasantly, Quiet yourself, my dear sir. You have nothing to fear. Be seated. I obeyed mechanically, and regaining in a few moments some semblance of composure, took a mental inventory of my visitor. Who is he? What is he? How did he enter without my notice? And why? What is his business? Were all questions that flashed into my mind in quick succession, and quickly flashed out unanswered. The stranger sat eyeing me composedly, even pleasantly, as if waiting for me to reach some conclusion regarding himself. At last, I surmised. He is a maniac who has found his way here by methods peculiar to the insane, and my personal safety demands that I use him discreetly. Very good, he remarked, as though reading my thoughts. As well think that as anything else. But why are you here? What is your business? I asked. You have made and lost a wager, he said. You have committed an act of folly in making positive statements regarding a matter about which you know nothing, a very common failing, by the way, on the part of mankind, and concerning which I wish first to set you straight. The ironical coolness with which he said this provoked me, and I hastily rejoined, You are impertinent. I must ask you to leave my house at once. Very well, he answered. 
But if you insist upon this, I shall, on behalf of Cicero, claim the stake of your voluntary wager, which means that I must first, by natural though violent means, release your soul from your body. So saying, he arose, drew from an inner pocket a long, keen knife, the blade of which quaveringly glistened as he laid it upon the table. Moving his chair so as to be within easy reach of the gleaming weapon, he sat down, and again regarded me with the same quiet composure I had noted, and which was fast dispelling my first impression concerning his sanity. I was not prepared for his strange action. In truth, I was not prepared for anything. My mind was confused concerning the whole night's doings, and I was unable to reason clearly or consecutively, or even to satisfy myself what I did think, if indeed I thought at all. The sensation of fear, however, was fast leaving me. There was something reassuring in my unbidden guest's perfect ease of manner, and the mild though searching gaze of his eyes, which were wonderful in their expression. I began to observe his personal characteristics, which impressed me favorably, and yet were extraordinary. He was nearly six feet tall and perfectly straight, well-proportioned, with no tendency either to leanness or obesity but his head was an object from which I could not take my eyes. Such a head, surely, I had never seen before on mortal shoulders. The chin, as seen through his silver beard, was rounded and well-developed, the mouth straight, with pleasant lines about it, the jaws square and like the mouth, indicating decision, the eyes deep-set and arched with heavy eyebrows, and the whole surmounted by a forehead so vast, so high, that it was almost a deformity and yet it did not impress me unpleasantly. It was the forehead of a scholar, a profound thinker, a deep student. The nose was inclined to aquiline and quite large. The contour of the head and face impressed me as indicating a man of learning, one who had given a lifetime to experimental as well as speculative thought. His voice was mellow, clear, and distinct, always pleasantly modulated and soft, never loud nor unpleasant in the least degree. One remarkable feature I must not fail to mention, his hair, this while thin and scant upon the top of his head, was long and reached to his shoulders. His beard was of unusual length, descending almost to his waist. His hair, eyebrows, and beard were all of the singular whiteness and purity, almost transparent, a silvery whiteness that seemed an areolar sheen in the glare of the gaslight. What struck me as particularly remarkable was that his skin looked as soft and smooth as that of a child. There was not a blemish in it. His age was a puzzle none could guess. Stripped of his hair or the color of it changed, he might be twenty-five. Given a few wrinkles, he might be ninety. Taken altogether, I had never seen his like, nor anything approaching his like. And for an instance, there was a faint suggestion to my mind that he was not of this earth, but belonged to some other planet. I now fancy he must have read my impressions of him as these ideas shaped themselves in my brain, and that he was quietly waiting for me to regain a degree of self-possession that would allow him to disclose the purpose of his visit. He was first to break the silence. I see that you are not disposed to pay your wager any more than I am to collect it, so we will not discuss that. I admit that my introduction tonight was abrupt, but you cannot deny that you challenged me to appear. I was not clear upon the point and said so. Your memory is at fault, he continued. If you cannot recall your experiences of the day just past, 
Did you not attempt to interest yourself in a modern book lore to fix your mind and turn upon history, chemistry, botany, poetry, and general literature? And all these failing, did you not deliberately challenge Cicero to a practical demonstration of an old apothegm of this that has survived for centuries? And of your own free will, did you not make a wager that, as an admirer of Cicero's, I am free to accept? To all this I could but silently assent. Very good, then. We will not pursue the subject further, as it is not relevant to my purpose, which is to acquaint you with the narrative of unusual interest upon certain conditions, with which, if you comply, you will not only serve yourself, but me as well. Please name the conditions, I said. They are simple enough, he answered. The narrative I speak of is in manuscript. I will produce it in the near future, and my design is to read it aloud to you, or to allow you to read it to me, as you may select. Further, my wish is that during the reading you shall interpose any objection or question that you deem proper. This reading will occupy many evenings, and I shall of necessity be with you often. When the reading is concluded, we will seal the package securely, and I shall leave you forever. You will then deposit the manuscript in some safe place and let it remain for thirty years. When this period has elapsed, I wish you to publish this history to the world. Your conditions seem easy, I said, after a few seconds' pause. They are certainly very simple. Do you accept? I hesitated, for the prospect of giving myself up to a succession of interviews with this extraordinary and mysterious personage seemed to require consideration. He evidently divined my thoughts, for rising from his chair, he said abruptly, Let me have your answer now. I debated the matter no further, but answered, I accept, conditionally. Name your conditions, the guest replied. I will either publish the work or induce some other man to do so. Good, he said. I will see you again. With a polite bow and turning to the door which I had previously locked, he opened it softly and with a quiet good night disappeared in the hallway. I looked after him with bewildered senses, but a sudden impulse caused me to glance toward the table, where I saw that he had forgotten his knife. With the view of returning this, I reached to pick it up, but my fingertips no sooner touched the handle than a sudden chill shivered along my nerves not as an electric shock, but rather as a sensation of extreme cold was the current that ran through me in an instant. Rushing into the hallway to the landing of the stairs, I called after the mysterious being. You have forgotten your knife! But beyond the faint echo of my voice, I heard no sound. The phantom was gone. A moment later, I was at the foot of the stairs and had thrown open the door. A street lamp shed an uncertain light in front of the house. I stepped out and listened intently for a moment, but not a sound was audible, if indeed I accept the beating of my own heart, which throbbed so wildly that I fancied I'd heard it. No footfall echoed from the deserted streets. All was silent as a churchyard, and I closed and locked the door softly, tiptoed my way back to my room, and sank, collapsed into an easy chair. I was more than exhausted. I quivered from head to foot, not with cold, but with a strange nervous chill that found intensest expression in my spinal column. 
and seemed to flash up and down my back, vibrating like a feverous pulse. This active pain was succeeded by a feeling of frozen numbness, and I sat I know not how long, trying to tranquilize myself and think temperately of the night's occurrence. By degrees I recovered my normal sensations, and directing my will in the channel of sober reasoning, I said to myself, There can be no mistake about his visit, for his knife is here as a witness to the fact. So much is sure, and I will secure the testimony at all events. But with reflection I turned to the table. But to my astonishment I discovered that the knife had disappeared. It needed but this miracle to start the perspiration in great cold beads from every pore. My brain was in a whirl, and reeling into a chair I covered my face with my hands. How long I sat in this posture I do not remember. I only know that I began to doubt my own sanity, and wondered if this were not the way people became deranged. Had not my peculiar habits of isolation, irregular and intense study, erratic living, all conspired to unseat reason? Surely here was every ground to believe so, and yet I was able still to think consistently and hold steadily to a single line of thought. Insane people cannot do that, I reflected and gradually the tremor and excitement wore away. When I had become calmer and more collected, and my sober judgment said, Go to bed, sleep just as long as you can, hold your eyelids down, and when you awake refreshed as you will, think out the whole subject at your leisure. I arose, threw open the shutters, and found that day was breaking. Hastily undressing, I went to bed and closed my eyes, vaguely conscious of some soothing guardianship perhaps because I was physically exhausted. I soon lost myself in the oblivion of sleep. I did not dream. At least I could not afterwards remember my dream if I had one. But I recollect thinking that somebody struck ten distinct blows on my door, which seemed to me to be of metal and very sonorous. These ten blows in my semi-conscious state I counted. I lay very quiet for a long time collecting my thoughts and noticed various objects about the room until my eye caught the dial of a French clock upon the mantel. It was a few minutes past ten, and the blows I had heard were the strokes of the hammer upon the gong and the clock. The sun was shining into the room, which was quite cold, for the fire had gone out. I rose, dressed myself quickly, and, after thoroughly laving my face and hands in ice-cold water, felt considerably refreshed. Before going out to breakfast, while looking around the room for a few things which I wanted to take with me, I espied upon the table a long white hair. This was indeed a surprise, for I had about concluded that my adventure of the previous night was a species of waking nightmare, the result of overworked brain and weakened body. But here was tangible evidence, to the contrary, an assurance that my mysterious visitor was not a fancy or a dream, and his parting words, I will see you again, recurred to me with singular effect. He will see me again. Very well. I will preserve this evidence of his visit for future use. I wound the delicate filament into a little coil, folded it carefully in a bit of paper, and consigned it to a corner in my pocketbook, though not without some misgiving that it too might disappear, as did the knife. The strange experience of that night had a good effect on me. I became more regular in all my habits, took abundant sleep and exercise, was more methodical in my modes of study and reasoning, 
and in a short time found myself vastly improved in every way, mentally and physically. The days went fleeting into weeks, the weeks into months, and while the form and figure of the white-haired stranger were seldom absent from my mind, he came no more. Chapter 2 A Friendly Conference It is rare in our present civilization to find a man who lives alone. This remark does not apply to hermits or persons of abnormal or perverted mental tendencies, but to the majority of mankind living and moving actively among their fellows and engaged in the ordinary occupations of humanity. Every man must have at least one confidant, either of his own household or within the circle of his intimate friends. There may possibly be rare exceptions among persons of genius in statecraft, war, or commerce, but it is doubtful even in such instances if any keep all their thoughts to themselves, hermetically sealed from their fellows. As a prevailing rule, either a loving wife or a very near friend shares the inner thought of the most secretive individual, even when secrecy seems an indispensable element to success. The tendency to a free interchange of ideas and experiences is almost universal, instinct prompting the natural man to unburden his most sacred thought when the proper confidant and the proper time come for the disclosure. For months I kept to myself the events narrated in the preceding chapter, and this for several reasons. First, the dread of ridicule that would follow the relation of the fantastic occurrences and the possible suspicion of my sanity that might result from the recital. Second, very grave doubts as to the reality of my experiences. But by degrees, self-confidence was restored, as I reasoned the matter over and reassured myself by occasional contemplation of the silvery hair I had coiled in my pocketbook, and which at first I had expected would vanish, as did the stranger's knife. There came upon me a feeling that I should see my weird visitor again, and at an early day. I resisted this impression, for it was a feeling of the idea rather than a thought, but the vague expectation grew upon me in spite of myself, until at length it became a conviction which no argument or logic could shake. Curiously enough, as the original incident receded into the past, this new idea thrust itself into the foreground and I began in my own mind to court another interview. At times, sitting alone after night, I felt that I was watched by unseen eyes. These eyes haunted me in my solitude, and I was morally sure of the presence of another than myself in the room. The sensation was at first unpleasant, and I tried to throw it off, with partial success. But only for a little while could I banish the intrusive idea and as the thought took form and the invisible presence became more actual to consciousness, I hoped that the stranger would make good his parting promise. I will see you again. On one thing I was resolved. I would at least be better informed on the subject of hallucinations and apparitions, and not be taken unawares as I had been. To this end, I decided to confer with my friend Professor Chickering, a quiet, thoughtful man of varied accomplishments, and thoroughly read upon a great number of topics, especially in the literature of the marvelous. So to the professor I went, after due appointment, and confided to him full particulars of my adventure. He listened patiently throughout, 
and when I had finished assured me in a matter-of-fact way that such hallucinations were by no means rare. His remark was provoking, for I did not expect from the patient interest he had shown while I was telling the story that the whole matter would be dismissed thus summarily, I said with some warmth. But this was not a hallucination. I tried at first to persuade myself that it was illusory, but the more I have thought the experience over, the more real it becomes to me. Perhaps you were dreaming, suggested the professor. No, I answered. I've tried that hypothesis, and it will not do. Many things make that view untenable. Do not be so sure of that, he said. You were, by your own account, in a highly nervous condition and physically tired. It is possible, perhaps probable, that in this state, as you sat in your chair, you dozed off for a short interval, during which the illusion flashed through your mind. How do you explain the fact that incidents occupying a large portion of the night occurred in an interval which you describe as a flash? Easily enough. In dreams, time may not exist. Periods embracing weeks or months may be reduced to an instant. Long journeys, hours of conversation, or a multitude of transactions may be compressed into a term measured by the opening or closing of a door, or the striking of a clock. In dreams, ordinary standards of reason find no place, while ideas or events chase through the mind more rapidly than thought. Conceding all this, why did I, considering the unusual character of the incidents, accept them as real, as substantial, as natural, as the most commonplace events? There's nothing extraordinary in that, he replied. In dreams, all sorts of absurdities, impossibilities, discordances, and violation of natural law appear realities, without exciting the least surprise or suspicion. Imagination runs riot and is supreme and reason for the time is dormant. We see ghosts, spirits, the forms of persons dead or living. We suffer pain, pleasure, hunger, and all the sensations and emotions, without a moment's question of their reality. Do any of the subjects of our dreams or visions have tangible evidences of their presence? Assuredly not, he answered with an incredulous, half-impatient gesture. The idea is absurd. Then I was not dreaming, I mused. Without looking at me, the professor went on. These false presentiments may have their origin in other ways, as from mental disorders caused by indigestion. Nikolai, a noted bookseller of Berlin, was thus afflicted. His experiences are interesting and possibly suggestive. Let me read some of them to you. The professor hereupon glanced over his bookshelf, selected a volume, and proceeded to read. Note, this work I have found to be Volume 4 of Chambers Miscellany, published by Gould and Lincoln, Boston, J.U.L. I generally saw human forms of both sexes, but they usually seemed not to take the smallest notice of each other, moving as in a marketplace, where all are eager to press through the crowd. At times, however, they seemed to be transacting business with each other. I also saw several times people on horseback, dogs, and birds. All these phantasms appeared to me in their natural size, and as distinct as if alive, exhibiting different shades of carnation in the uncovered parts, as well as different colors and fashions in their dresses, though the colors seemed somewhat paler than in real nature. 
None of the figures appeared particularly terrible, comical, or disgusting, most of them being in indifferent shape, and some presenting a pleasant aspect. The longer these phantasms continued to visit me, the more frequently did they return, while at the same time they increased in number about four weeks after they had first appeared. I also began to hear them talk. These phantoms conversed among themselves, but more frequently addressed their discourse to me. Their speeches were uncommonly short, and never of an unpleasant turn. At different times there appeared to me both dear and sensible friends of both sexes, whose addresses tended to appease my grief, which had not yet wholly subsided. Their consolatory speeches were in general addressed to me when I was alone. Sometimes, however, I was accosted by these consoling friends while I was engaged in company, and not unfrequently while real persons were speaking to ale. These consolatory addresses consisted sometimes of abrupt phrases, and at other times they were regularly executed. Here I interrupted. I note, Professor, that Mr. Nikolai knew these forms to be illusions. Without answering my remark, he continued to read. There is in imagination a potency far exceeding the fabled power of Aladdin's lamp. How often does one sit in wintry evening musings and trace in the glowing embers the features of an absent friend? Imagination, with its magic wand, will there build a city with its countless spires, or martial contending armies, or drive the tempest-shattered ship upon the ocean. The following story related by Scott affords a good illustration of this principle. Not long after the death of an illustrious poet, who had filled, while living, a great station in the eyes of the public, a literary friend, to whom the deceased had been well known, was engaged during the darkening twilight of an autumn evening, in perusing one of the publications which professed to detail the habits and opinions of the distinguished individual, who was now no more. As the reader had enjoyed the intimacy of the deceased to a considerable degree, he was deeply interested in the publication which contained some particulars relating to himself and other friends. A visitor was sitting in the apartment, who was also engaged in reading. Their sitting room opened into an entrance hall, rather fantastically fitted up with articles of armor, skins of wild animals, and the like. It was when laying down his book and passing into this hall, through which the moon was beginning to shine, that the individual of whom I speak saw right before him, in a standing posture the exact representation of his departed friend whose recollection had been so strongly brought to his imagination. He stopped for a single moment, so as to notice the wonderful accuracy with which fancy had impressed upon the bodily eye the peculiarities of dress and position of the illustrious poet. Sensible, however, of the delusion, he felt no sentiment save that of wonder at the extraordinary accuracy of the resemblance, and stepped onward toward the figure which resolved itself as he approached into the various materials of which it was composed. These were merely a screen occupied by great coats, shawls, plaids, and such, other articles as are usually found in a country entrance hall. The spectator returned to the spot from which he had seen the illusion, and endeavored with all his power to recall the image which had been so singularly vivid. But this he was unable to do, and the person who had witnessed the apparition, or more properly, whose excited state, had been the means of raising it, had only to return to the apartment and tell his young friend under what a striking hallucination he had for a moment labored. Here I was constrained to call the professor to a halt. 
Your stories are very interesting, I said, but I failed to perceive any analogy in either the conditions or the incidents to my experience. I was fully awake and conscious at the time, and the man I saw appeared and moved about in the full glare of the gaslight. Perhaps not, he answered. I am simply giving you some general illustrations of the subject, but here is a case more to the point. Again, he read. A lady was once passing through a wood in the darkening twilight of a stormy evening to visit a friend who was watching over a dying child. The clouds were thick, the rain beginning to fall, darkness was increasing, the wind was moaning mournfully through the trees. The lady's heart almost failed her as she saw that she had a mile to walk through the woods in the gathering gloom, but the reflection of the situation of her friend forbade her turning back. Excited and trembling, she called to her aid a nervous resolution and pressed onward. She had not proceeded far when she beheld in the path before her the movement of some very indistinct object. It appeared to keep a little distance ahead of her, and as she made efforts to get nearer to see what it was, it seemed proportionately to recede. The lady began to feel rather unpleasantly. There was some pale white object certainly discernible before her, and it appeared mysteriously to float along at a regular distance without any effort at motion. Notwithstanding the lady's good sense and unusual resolution, a cold chill began to come over her. She made every effort to resist Lear fears, and soon succeeded in drawing nearer the mysterious object, when she was appalled at beholding the features of her friend's child, cold in death, wrapped in its shroud. She gazed earnestly, and there it remained distinct and clear before her eyes. She considered it a premonition that her friend's child was dead and that she must hasten to her aid. But there was the apparition directly in her path. She must pass it. Taking up a little stick, she forced herself along to the object, and behold, some little animal scampered away. It was this that her excited imagination had transformed into the corpse of an infant in its winding sheet. I was a little irritated, and once more interrupted the reader warmly. This is exasperating. Now what resemblance is there between the vagaries of a hysterical, weak-minded woman and my case? He smiled and read again. The numerous stories told of ghosts or the spirits of persons who are dead will in most instances be found to have originated in diseased imagination, aggravated by some abnormal defective mind. We may mention a remarkable case in point, and one which is not mentioned in English works on this subject. It is told by a compiler of Le Causes Celebre. Two young noblemen, the Marquises de Rambouillet and de Pressy, belonging to two of the first families of France, made an agreement in the warmth of their friendship that the one who died first should return to the other with tidings of the world to come. Soon afterwards, de Rambouillet went to the war in Flanders, while de Pressy remained at Paris, stricken by a fever. Living alone in bed and severely ill, de Pressy one day heard a rustling of his bed curtains, and turning around saw his friend, de Rambouillet, in full military attire. The sick man sprung over the bed to welcome his friend, but the other receded, and said that he had come to fulfill his promise, having been killed on that very day. He further said that it behooved de Pressy to think more of the afterworld, as all that was said of it was true, and as he himself would die in his first battle. De Pressy was then left by the phantom, 
and it was afterward found that Durambouillet had fallen on that day. Ah, I said, and so the phantom predicted an event that followed as indicated. Spiritual illusions, explained the professor, are not unusual, as well-authenticated cases are not wanting in which they have been induced in persons of intelligence by functional or organic disorders. In the last case cited, the prediction was followed by a fulfillment, but this was chance or mere coincidence. It would be strange indeed if in the multitude of dreams that come to humanity, some few should not be followed by events so similar as to warrant the belief that they were prefigured. But here is an illustration that fits your case. Let me read it. In some instances, it may be difficult to decide whether spectral appearances and spectral noises proceed from physical derangement or from an overwrought state of mind. Want of exercise and amusement may also be a prevailing cause. A friend mentions to us the following case. An acquaintance of his, a merchant in London, who had for years paid very close attention to business, was one day, while alone in his counting-house, very much surprised to hear, as he imagined, persons outside the door talking freely about him. Thinking it was some acquaintances who were playing off a trick, he opened the door to request them to come in. When to his amazement he found that nobody was there. He again sat down to his desk, and in a few minutes the same dialogue recommenced. The language was very alarming. One voice seemed to say, We have the scoundrel in his own counting-house. Let us go in and seize him. Certainly, replied the other voice. It is right to take him. He has been guilty of a great crime and ought to be brought to condign punishment. Alarmed at these threats, the bewildered merchant rushed to the door, and there again no person was to be seen. He now locked his door and went home, but the voices, as he thought, followed him through the crowd, and he arrived at his house in a most unenviable state of mind. Inclined to ascribe the voices to derangement in mind, he sent for a medical attendant and told his case, and a certain kind of treatment was prescribed. This, however, failed. The voices menacing him with the punishment for purely imaginary crimes continued, and he was reduced to the brink of despair. At length, the friend prescribed entire relaxation from business and a daily game of cricket, which to his great relief proved an effectual remedy. The exercise banished the phantom voices, and they were no more heard. So you think I am in need of outdoor exercise? Exactly. And that my experience was illusory, the result of vertigo or some temporary calenture of the brain? To be plain with you, yes. But I asked you a while ago if specters or phantoms ever leave tangible evidence of their presence. The professor's eyes dilated in interrogation. I continued. Well, this one did. After I had followed him out, I found on the table long white hair, which I still have. And producing the little coil from my pocketbook, I handed it to him. He examined it curiously, eyed me furtively, and handed it back with a cautious remark. I think you had better commence your exercise at once. Chapter 3 A Second Interview with the Mysterious Visitor It is not pleasant to have one's mental responsibility brought in question. And the result of my interview with Professor Chickering was, to put it mildly, unsatisfactory. Not that he had exactly questioned my sanity, 
but it was all too evident that he was disposed to accept my statement of a plain matter-of-fact occurrence with a too liberal modicum of salt. I say matter-of-fact occurrence in full knowledge of the truth that I myself had at first regarded the whole transaction as a fantasia or flight of mind, the result of extreme nervous tension. But in the interval succeeding, I had abundant opportunity to correlate my thoughts and to bring some sort of order out of the mental and physical chaos of that strange eventful night. True, the preliminary events leading up to it were extraordinary, the dismal weather, the depression of body and spirit under which I labored, the wild whirl of thought keeping pace with the elements, in short, a general concatenation of events that seemed to be ordered especially for an introduction of some abnormal visitor. The night would indeed have been incomplete without a ghost. But was it a ghost? There was nothing ghostly about my visitor, except the manner of his entrance and exit. In other respects, he seemed substantial enough. He was, in his manners, courteous and polished as a Chesterfield, learned as a savant in his conversation, human in his thoughtful regard of my fears and misgivings. But that tremendous forehead, with its crown of silver hair, the long, translucent beard of pearly whiteness, and above all the astounding facility with which he read my hidden thoughts, these were not natural. The professor had been patient with me. I had a right to expect that. He was entertaining to the extent of reading such excerpts as he had with him on the subject of hallucinations and their supposed causes. But had he not spoiled all by assigning me at last to a place with the questionable, unbalanced characters he had cited? I thought so, and the reflection provoked me, and this thought grew upon me until I came to regard his stories and attendant theories as so much literary trash. My own reflections had been sober and deliberate, and had led me to seek a rational explanation of the unusual phenomena. I had gone to Professor Chickering for a certain measure of sympathy, and what was more to the point, to secure his suggestions and assistance in the further unraveling of a profound mystery that might contain a secret of untold use to humanity. Repulsed by the mode in which my confidence had been received, I decided to do what I should have done from the outset, to keep my own counsel, and to follow alone the investigation to the end, no matter what the result might be. I could not forget or ignore the silver hair I had so religiously preserved. That was genuine. It was as tangible, as real, as convincing a witness as would have been the entire head of my singular visitant, whatever might be his nature. I began to feel at ease the moment my course was decided, and the feeling was at once renewed within me that the grey head would come again, and by degrees that expectation ripened into a desire only intensified as the days sped by. The weeks passed into months. Summer came and went. Autumn was fast fading, but the mysterious unknown did not appear. A curious fancy led me now to regard him as my friend, for the mixed and indefinite feelings I felt at first towards him had almost unaccountably been changed to those of sincere regard. He was not always in my thoughts, for had abundant occupation at all times to keep both brains and hands busy, but there were few evenings in which I did not, just before retiring, give myself up for a brief period to quiet communion with my own thoughts. And I must confess at such times 
the unknown occupied the larger share of attention. The constant contemplation of any theme begets a feeling of familiarity or acquaintance with the same. And if that subject be an individual, as in the present instance, such contemplation lessens the liability to surprise from any unexpected development. In fact, I not only anticipated a visit, but courted it. The old Latin maxim that I had played with, never less alone than when alone, had domiciled itself within my brain as a permanent lodger, a conviction, a feeling rather than a thought defined, and I had but little difficulty in associating an easy chair which I had come to place in a certain position for my expected visitor with his presence. Indian summer had passed, and the fall was nearly gone when, for some inexplicable reason, the number seven began to haunt me. What had I to do with seven, or seven with me? When I sat down at night, this persistent number mixed itself in my thoughts, to my intense annoyance. Father, take the mystic numeral. What was I to do with seven? I found myself asking this question audibly one evening when it suddenly occurred to me that I would refer to the date of my friend's visit. I kept no journal, but reference to a record of some business transactions that I had associated with that event showed that it took place on November 7th. That settled the importunate seven. I should look for whomever he was on the first anniversary of his visit, which was the seventh, now close at hand. The instant I had reached this conclusion, the number left me and troubled me no more. November 3rd had passed, the 4th, and the 5th had come, when a stubborn protesting notion entered my mind that I was yielding to a superstitious idea, and that it was time to control my vacillating will. Accordingly, on this day I sent word to a friend that, if agreeable to him, I would call him on the evening of the 7th for a short social chat, but as I expected to be engaged until later than usual, would he excuse me if I did not reach his apartments until ten? The request was singular, but as I was now accounted somewhat odd, it excited no comment, and the answer was returned, requesting me to come. The 7th of November came at last. I was nervous during the day, which seemed to drag tediously, and several times it was remarked of me that I seemed abstracted and ill at ease, but I held my peace. Night came cold and clear, and the stars shone brighter than usual, I thought. It was a sharp contrast to the night of a year ago. I took an early supper, for which I had no appetite, after which I strolled aimlessly about the streets, revolving how I should put in the time till ten o'clock, when I was to call upon my friend. I decided to go to the theatre, and to the theatre I went. The play was spectacular. Aladdin or the wonderful lamp. The entertainment to me was a flat failure, for I was busy with my thoughts, and it was not long until my thoughts were busy with me, and I found myself attempting to answer a series of questions that finally became embarrassing. Why did you make an appointment for ten o'clock instead of eight, if you wished to keep away from your apartments? I hadn't thought of that before. It was stupid to a degree, if not ill-mannered and I frankly admitted as much. Why did you make an appointment at all, in the face of the fact that you had not only expected a visitor, but were anxious to meet him? This was easily answered, because I did not wish to yield to what struck me as superstition. 
But do you expect to extend your call until morning? Well, no, I hadn't thought or arranged to do so. Well, then, what is to prevent your expected guest from awaiting your return? Or what assurance have you that he will not encounter you in the street, under circumstances that will provoke or, at the least, embarrass you? None whatever. And what have you gained by your stupid perversity? Nothing beyond the assertion of my own individuality. Why not go home and receive your guest in becoming style? No, I would not do that. I had started on this course and would persevere in it. I would be consistent, and so I persisted, at least until nine o'clock, when I quit the theater in sullen dejection and went home to make some slight preparation for my evening call. With my latch key, I let myself into the front door of the apartment house where I lodged, walked through the hall, up the staircase, and paused on the threshold of my room, wondering what I would find inside. Opening the door, I entered, leaving it open behind me so that the light from the hallway would shine into the room, which was dark, and there was no transom above the door. The great fire had caked into a solid mass of charred bituminous coal, which shed no illumination beyond a faint red glow at the bottom, showing that it was barely alive, and no more. I struck a match on the underside of the mantel shelf, and as I lit the gas I heard the click of a door latch. I turned instantly. The door had been gently closed by some unknown force, if not by unseen hands, for there was no breath of air stirring. This preternatural interference was not pleasant, for I had hoped in the event of another visit from my friend, if friend he was, that he would bring no uncanny or ghostly manifestation to disturb me. I looked at the clock. The index pointed to half-past nine. I glanced about the room. It was orderly, everything in proper position, even to the armchair that I had been wont to place for my nondescript visitor. It was time to be going, so I turned to the dressing case, brushed my hair, put on a clean scarf, and moved towards the washstand, which stood in a little alcove on the opposite side of the room. My self-command well-nigh deserted me as I did so, for there, in the armchair that a moment before was empty, sat my guest of a year ago, facing me with placid features. The room began to revolve, a faint, sick feeling came over me, and I reeled into the first convenient chair, and covered my face with my hands. This depression lasted but an instant. However, as I recovered self-possession, I felt or fancied I felt a pair of penetrating eyes fixed upon me with the same mild, searching gaze I remembered so well. I ventured to look up. Sure enough, there they were, the beaming eyes, and there was he. Rising from his chair, he towered up to his full height, smiled pleasantly, and with a slight inclination of the head murmured, Permit me to wish you good evening. I'm profoundly glad to meet you again. It was a full minute before I could muster courage to answer. I wish I could say as much for myself. And why shouldn't you? He said, gently and courteously. You have realized for the past six months that I would return. More than that, you have known for some time the very day and almost the exact hour of my coming. I've even wished for it. And in the face of all this, I find you preparing to evade the requirements of common hospitality. Are you doing either me or yourself justice? I was nettled at the knowledge he displayed of my movements and of my very thoughts. 
my old stubbornness asserted itself, and I was rude enough to say, Perhaps it is as you say. At all events, I am obligated to keep an engagement, and with your permission, will now retire. It was curious to mark the effect of this speech upon the intruder. He immediately became grave, reached quietly into an inner pocket of his coat, drew thence the same glittering, horrible, mysterious knife that had so terrified and bewildered me a year before, and looked me steadily in the eye, said coldly, yet with a certain tone of sadness, Well, I will not grant permission. It is unpleasant to resort to this style of argument, but I do it to save time and controversy. I stepped back in terror and reached for the old-fashioned bell cord with a heavy tassel at the end that depended from the ceiling and was on the point of grasping and giving it a vigorous pull. Not so fast, if you please, he said sternly as he stepped forward and gave the knife a rapid swish through the air above my head, causing the cord to fall in a tangle about my hand, cut cleanly high above my reach. I gazed in dumb stupor at the rope about my hand and raised my eyes to the remnant above. That was motionless. There was not the slightest perceptible vibration, such as would naturally be expected. I turned to look at my guest. He had resumed his seat and had also regained his pleasant expression, but he still held the knife in his hand with his arm extended at rest upon the table which stood upon his right. Let us have an end to this folly, he said. Think a moment, and you will see that you are in fault. Your error we will rectify easily, and then to business. I will first show you the futility of trying to escape this interview, and then we will proceed to work, for time presses, and there is much to do. Having delivered this remark, he detached a single silvery hair from his head blew it from his fingers and let it float gently upon the upturned edge of the knife, which was still resting on the table. The hair was divided as readily as had been the bell cord. I was transfixed with astonishment, for he had evidently aimed to exhibit the quality of the blade, though he made no allusion to the feat, but smilingly went on with his discourse. It is just a year ago tonight since we first met. Upon that occasion you made an agreement with me which you are in honor bound to keep, and here he paused, as if to note the effect of his words upon me, then added significantly, will keep. I've been at some pains to impress upon your mind the fact that I would be here tonight. You responded and knew that I was coming, and yet in obedience to a silly whim deliberately made a meaningless engagement with no other purpose than to violate a solemn obligation. I now insist that you keep your prior engagement with me, but I do not wish that you should be rude to your friend. So you had better write him a polite note excusing yourself and dispatch it at once. I saw that he was right, and that there was no shadow of justification for my conduct, or at least I was subdued by his presence so I wrote the note without delay and was casting about for some way to send it when he said, Fold it, seal it, and address it. You seem to forget what is proper. I did as he directed, mechanically and without thinking what I was doing, handed it to him. He took it naturally, glanced at the superscription, went to the door which he opened slightly and handed the billet as if to some messenger who seemed to be in waiting outside. 
then closed and locked the door. Turning toward me with the apparent object of seeing if I was looking, he deftly drew his knife twice across the front of the doorknob, making a deep cross, and then deposited the knife in his pocket and resumed his seat. I noted afterward that the doorknob, which was of solid metal, was cut deeply, as though made of putty. As soon as he was comfortably seated, he again began the conversation. Now that we have settled the preliminaries, I will ask if you remember what I required of you a year ago. I thought that I did. Please repeat it. I wish to make sure that you do. Then we will start fair. In the first place, you were to present me with a manuscript. Hardly correct, he interrupted. I was to acquaint you with a narrative which is already in manuscript, acquaint you with it, read it to you, if you preferred not to read it to me. I beg your pardon, I answered. That is correct. You were to read the manuscript to me, and during the reading I was to interpose such comments, remarks, or objections as seemed proper, to embody as interludes in the manuscript, as my own interpolations, however, and not as part of the original. Very good, he replied. You have the idea exactly. Proceed. I agreed that when the reading had been completed, I would seal the complete manuscript securely, deposit it in some safe place, there to remain for thirty years, when it must be published. Just so, he answered. We understand each other as we should. Before we proceed further, however, can you think of any point on which you need enlightenment? If so, ask such questions as you should choose, and I will answer them. I thought for a moment, but no query occurred to me. After a pause, he said, Well, if you think of nothing now, perhaps hereafter questions will occur to you, which you can ask. But as it is late and you are tired, we will not commence now. I will see you just one week from tonight, when we will begin. From that time on, we will follow the subject as rapidly as you choose. But see to it that you make no engagements that will interfere with our work, for I shall be more exacting in the future. I promised, and as he rose to go, a sudden impulse seized me, and I said, May I ask one question? Certainly. What shall I call you? Why call me aught? It is not necessary in addressing each other that any name be used. But what are you? I persisted. A pained expression for an instant rested upon his face, and he said sadly, pausing between the words, I am the man who did it. Did what? Ask not. The manuscript will tell you. Be content, Llewellyn, and remember this, that I am the man. So saying, he bade me good night, opened the door, and disappeared down the broad staircase. One week thereafter, he appeared promptly, seated himself, and producing a roll of manuscript, handed it to me, saying, I am listening. You may begin to read. On examination, I found each page to be somewhat larger than a sheet of letter paper with the written matter occupying a much smaller space so as to leave a wide white border. One hundred pages were in the package, the last sentence ending abruptly indicating that my guest did not expect to complete his task in one evening, 
and I may anticipate by saying that with each successive interview, he drew about the same amount of writing from his bosom. Upon attempting to read the manuscript, I at first found myself puzzled by a style of choreography very peculiar and characteristic, but execrably bad. Vainly did I attempt to read it. Even the opening sentence was not deciphered without long inspection and great difficulty. The old man, whom I had promised that I would fulfill the task, observing my discomfiture, relieved me of the charge, and without a word of introduction, read fluently as follows. Chapter 4. The Manuscript of I Am the Man. A Search for Knowledge. The Alchemistic Letter. I am the man who, unfortunately for my future happiness, was dissatisfied with such knowledge as could be derived from ordinary books concerning semi-scientific subjects in which I had long been absorbed. I studied the current works of my day on philosophy and chemistry, hoping therein to find something tangible regarding the relationship that exists between matter and spirit, but studied in vain. Astronomy, history, philosophy, and the mysterious, incoherent works of alchemy and occultism were finally appealed to, but likewise failed to satisfy me. These studies were pursued in secret, though I am not aware that any necessity existed for concealment. Be that as it may, at every opportunity I covertly acquainted myself with such alchemical lore as could be obtained, either by purchase or by correspondence, with others whom I found to be pursuing investigations in the same direction. A translation of Geber's Declaritate Alchemae by chance came into my possession, and afterwards an original version from the Latin of Borhav's Elementa Chemi, published and translated in 1753 by Peter Shaw. This magnificent production threw a flood of light upon the early history of chemistry, being far more elaborate than any modern work. It inspired me with the deepest regard for its talented author, and ultimately introduced me to a brotherhood of adepts. For in this publication, although its author disclaims occultism, is to be found a talisman that will enable any earnest searcher after light to become a member of the Society of Secret Chemical Improvers of Natural Philosophy with which I affiliated as soon as the key was discovered. Then followed a systematic investigation of authorities of the alchemical school, including Geber, Morinus, Roger Bacon, George Ripley, Raymond Lully, Bernard, Count of Trevise, Isaac Hollandus, Arnoldus de la Velanova, Heracelsus, and others, not omitting the learned researches of the distinguished scientist Llewellyn. I discovered that many talented men are still firm believers in the lost art of alchemy, and that among the followers of the thrice-famed Hermes are to be found statesmen, clergymen, lawyers, and scientific men who, for various reasons, invariably conceal with great tact their connection with the fraternity of adepts. Some of these men had written scientific treatises of a very different character from those circulating among the members of our brotherhood and to their materialistic readers it would seem scarcely possible that the authors could be tainted with hallucinations of any description, while others, conspicuous leaders in the church, were seemingly beyond occult temptation. The large number, it was evident, hoped by studies of the works of the alchemists, to find the key to the alchemist of Van Helmont, that is, to discover the philosopher's stone, 
or the elixir of life. And from their writings, it is plain that the inner consciousness of thoughtful and scientific men rebelled against confinement to the narrow bounds of materialistic science, within which they were forced to appear as dogmatic pessimists. To them, scientific orthodoxy acting as a weight prohibited intellectual speculation as rank heresy. A few of my co-laborers were expert manipulators and worked experimentally following in their laboratories the suggestions of those gifted students who had pored over precious old manuscripts and had attempted to solve the enigmatical formulas recorded therein, puzzles familiar to students of hermetic lore. It was thus demonstrated, for what I have related is history, that in this nineteenth century there exists a fraternity, the members of which are as earnest in their belief in the truth of esoteric philosophy as were the followers of Hermes himself, savants who in secret circulate among themselves a literature that the materialism of this self-same nineteenth century has relegated to the deluded and murky periods that produced it. One day a postal package came to my address this being the manner in which some of our literature circulated, which, on examination, I found to be a letter of instruction and advice from some unknown member of our circle. I was already becoming disheartened over the mental confusion into which my studies were leading me, and the contents of the letter in which I was greatly interested made a lasting impression upon me. It seemed to have been circulating a long time among our members in Europe and America, for it bore numerous marginal notes of various dates but each and every one of its readers had for one reason or another declined the task therein suggested. From the substance of the paper, which, written exquisitely, yet partook of the ambiguous alchemistic style, it was evident that the author was well versed in alchemy, and in order that my position may be clearly understood at this turning point in a life of remarkable adventure, this letter is appended in full. The Alchemistic Letter to the brotherhood adept who dares try to discover Zoroaster's cave, or the philosopher's intellectual echoes, by means of which they communicate to one another from their caves. Know thou that Hermes Trismegistus did not originate, but he gave to our philosophy his name, the Hermetic Art. Evolved in a dim, mystic age before antiquity began, it endured through the slowly rolling cycles to be bandied about by the ever-ready flippancy of the nineteenth-century students. It has lived because it is endowed with that quality which never dies, truth. Modern philosophy, of which chemistry is but a fragment, draws its sustenance from the prime facts which were revealed in ancient Egypt through hermetic thought and fixed by the hermetic stylus. The hermetic allegories, so various in interpretable susceptibility, led subsequent thinkers into speculations and experimentations, which have resulted profitably to the world. It is not strange that some of the followers of Hermes, especially the more mercurial and imaginative, should have evolved nebulous theories, no longer explainable, and involving recondite spiritual considerations. Know thou that the ultimate on psychochemical investigation is the proximate of the infinite. Accordingly, a class came to believe that a projection of natural mental faculties into an advanced state of consciousness called the wisdom faculty constitutes the final possibility of alchemy. The attainment of this exalted condition is still believed practicable by many earnest savants. Once on this lofty plane, the individual would not be trammeled by material obstacles. 
but would abide in that spiritual placidity, which is the exquisite realization of moral perfection. So exalted he would be in naked parallelism with omniscience, and through his illuminated understanding could feast his soul on those exalted pleasures, which are only less than deific. Notwithstanding the exploiting of a number of these philosophers, in which by reason of our inability to comprehend, sense seemed lost in a passage of incohesive dreamery and resonance of terminology, some of the purest spiritual researches the world has ever known were made in the dawn of history. The much-abused alchemical philosophers existed upon a plane, in some respects above the level of the science of today. Many of them lived for the good of the world only, in an atmosphere above the materialistic hordes that people the world, and toiling over their crucibles and alembics, died in their cells uttering no voice. Take, for example, Arrhenius Philolathes, who, born in 1623, lived contemporaneously with Robert Boyle. A fragment from his writings will illustrate the purpose which impelled the searcher for the true light of alchemy to record his discoveries and allegories, and we have no right to question the honesty of his utterances. The searcher of all hearts knows that I write the truth, nor is there any cause to accuse me of envy. I write with an unterrified quill in an unheard-of style to the honor of God, to the profit of my neighbors, with contempt of the world and its riches, because Elias, the artist, is already born, and now glorious things are declared of the city of God. I dare affirm that I do possess more riches than the whole known world is worth, but I cannot make use of it because of the snares of knaves. I disdain, loathe, and detest the idolizing of silver and gold by which the pomps and vanities of the world are celebrated. Ah, filthy evil! Ah, vain nothingness! Believe ye that I conceal the art out of envy. No, verily I protest to you, I grieve from the very bottom of my soul that we, alchemists, are driven like vagabonds from the face of the Lord throughout the earth. But what need of many words? The thing that we have seen, taught, and made, which we have possess and know, that we do declare, being moved with compassion for the studious and with indignation of gold, silver, and precious stones. Believe me, the time is at the door, I feel it in spirit, when we, adeptes, shall return from the four corners of the earth, nor shall we fear any snares that are laid against our lives, but we shall give thanks to the Lord our God. I would to God that every ingenious man in the whole earth understood this science, then it would be valued only for its wisdom, and virtue only be had in honor. Of course, there was a worldlier class, and a large contingent of mercenary impostors, as science is always encumbered, parasites whose animus was shamefully unlike the purity of true esoteric psychologists. These men devoted their lives to experimentation for selfish advancement. They constructed alchemical outfits, and carried on ceaseless inquiry into the nature of solvents, and studied their influences on earthly bodies, their ultimate object being the discovery of the Philosopher's Stone, and the alkahest, which Borhav asserts was never discovered. Their records were often a verbose melange, purposely so written, no doubt to cover their tracks, and to make themselves conspicuous. Other hermetic believers occupied a more elevated position, 
and connected the intellectual with the material, hoping to gain by their philosophy and science not only gold and silver, which were secondary considerations, but the highest literary achievement, the magnum opus. Others still sought to draw from astrology and magic the secrets that would lead them to their ambitious goal. Thus, there were degrees of fineness in a fraternity, which the science of today must recognize and admit. Borhov, the illustrious, respected Geber of the alchemistic school, and none need feel compromised in admiring the talented alchemists who, like Geber, wrought in the twilight of morn for the coming world's good. We are now enjoying a fragment of the ultimate results of their genius and industry in the materialistic outcomes of present-day chemistry, to be followed by others more valuable. And at last, when mankind is ripe in the wisdom faculty, by spiritual contentment in the complacent furthering beyond. Allow me briefly to refer to a few men of the alchemistic type whose records may be considered with advantage. Rassus, a conspicuous alchemist, born in 850, first mentioned orpiment, borax, compounds of iron, copper, arsenic, and other similar substances. It is said, too, that he discovered the art of making brandy. About a century later, Al-Farabi, killed in 950, a great alchemist, astonished the king of Syria with his profound learning and excited the admiration of the wise men of the East by his varied accomplishments. Later, Albertus Magnus, born 1205, noted for his talent and skill, believed firmly in the doctrine of transmutation. His beloved pupil, Thomas Aquinas, gave us the word amalgam, and it still serves us. Contemporaneously with these lived Roger Bacon, born 1214, who was a man of the most extraordinary ability. There has never been a greater English intellect, not accepting his illustrious namesake, Lord Bacon, and his penetrating mind delved deeper into nature's laws than that of any successor. He told us of facts concerning the sciences that scientific men cannot fully comprehend today. He told us of other things that lie beyond the science provings of today that modern philosophers cannot grasp. He was an enthusiastic believer in the hermetic philosophy, and such were his erudition and advanced views that his brother Friars, through jealousy and superstition, had him thrown into prison, a common fate to men who in those days dared to think ahead of their age. Despite, as some would say, of his mighty reasoning power and splendid attainments, he believed the philosopher's stone to be a reality. He believed the secret of indefinite prolongation of life abode in alchemy, that the future could be predicted by means of a mirror, which he called Amuchese, and that by alchemy an adept could produce pure gold. He asserted that by means of Aristotle's secret of secrets, pure gold can be made, gold even purer and finer than what men now know as gold. In connection with other predictions, he made an assertion that may, with other seemingly unreasonable predictions, be verified in time to come. He said, It is equally possible to construct cars which may be set in motion with marvelous rapidity, independently of horses or other animals. He declared that the ancients had done this, and he believed the art might be revived. Following came various enthusiasts, such as Raymond, the ephemeral, died 1315 who flared like a meteor into his brief, brilliant career. Arnold de Villanova, 1240, a celebrated adept whose books were burned by the Inquisition on account of the heresy they taught, 
Nicolas Flamel of France, 1350, loved by the people for his charities. The wonder of his age, our age will not admit the facts, on account of the vast fortune he amassed without visible means or income, outside of alchemical lore. Johannes de Rupsisus, a man of such remarkable daring that he even, 1357, reprimanded Pope Innocent VI, for which he was promptly imprisoned. Basil Valentine, 1410, the author of many works and the man who introduced antimony and to manax into medicine. Isaac of Holland, who with his son skillfully made artificial gems that could not be distinguished from the natural. Bernard Trevisan, born 1406, who spent $30,000 in the study of alchemy, out of much of which he was cheated by cruel alchemical pretenders, for even in that day there were plenty of rogues to counterfeit a good thing. Under stress of his strong alchemic convictions, Thomas Dalton placed his head on the block by order of the virtuous and conservative Thomas Herbert, squire to King Edward. Jacob Bohm, born 1575, the sweet, pure spirit of Christian mysticism, the voice of heaven, than whom none stood higher in true alchemy, was a Christian alchemist, theosophist, Robert Boyle, a conspicuous alchemical philosopher. In 1662 published his Defense of the Doctrine Touching the Spring and Weight of the Air, and illustrated his arguments by a series of ingenious and beautiful experiments that stand today so high in the estimation of scientific men that his remarks are copied verbatim by our highest authorities, and his apparatus is the best yet devised for the purpose. Boyle's law was evolved and carefully defined fourteen years before Mariette's Discourse de la Nature de l'Air appeared, which did not, however, prevent French and German scientific men from giving the credit to Marriott, and they still followed the false teacher who boldly pirated not only Boyle's ideas, but stole his apparatus. Then appeared such men as Paracelsus, born 1493, a celebrated physician, who taught that occultism, esoteric philosophy, was superior to experimental chemistry in enlightening us concerning the transmutation of baser metals into gold and silver. And Guepo Francisco, born 1627, who wrote a beautiful treatise on elementary spirits, which was copied without credit by Comte de Gabelli. It seems incredible that the man, Guepo Francisco, whose sweet spirit thoughts are revivified and breathe anew in Undine and the Rape of the Lock, should have been thrown into a prison to perish as a hermetic follower. And this should teach us not to question the earnestness of those who left us as a legacy to beauty and truth so abundantly found in pure alchemy. These and many others, contemporaries, some conspicuous, and others whose names do not shine in written history, contributed incalculably to the grand aggregate of knowledge concerning the divine secret which enriched the world. Compare the benefits of hermetic philosophy with the result of bloody wars ambitiously waged by self-exacting tyrants, tyrants whom history applauds as heroes, but whom we consider as butchers. Among the workers in alchemy are enumerated nobles, kings, and even popes. Pope John XII was an alchemist, which accounts for his bull against impostors, promulgated in order that true students may not be discredited and King Frederick of Naples sanctioned the art and protected his devotees. 
At last, Count Cagliostro, the checkered Joseph Balsamo, born 1743, who combined alchemy, magic, astrology, sleight of hand, mesmerism, Freemasonry, and remarkable personal accomplishments that altogether have never since been equaled, burst upon the world, focusing the gaze of the church, kings, and the commons upon himself, in many respects the most audacious pretender that history records. He raised the hermetic art to a dazzling height, and finally buried it in a blaze of splendor as he passed from existence beneath a mantle of shame. As a meteor streams into view from out of the star mists of space, and in coruscated glory sinks into the sea, Cagliostro blazed into the sky of the 18th century, from the nebula of alchemistic speculation, and extinguished both himself and his science in the light of the rising sun of materialism. Cagliostro, the visionary, the poet, the inspired, the erratic comet in the universe of intellect, perished in prison as a mountebank. And then the plodding chemist of today, with his tedious mechanical methods and cold, unresponsive materialistic dogmas, arose from the ashes and sprang into prominence. Read the story backward, and you shall see that in alchemy we behold the beginning of all the sciences of today. Alchemy is the cradle that rocked them fostered with necromancy, astrology, occultism, and all the progeny of mystic dreamery, the infant sciences struggled for existence through the Dark Ages, in care of the once persecuted and now traduced alchemist. The world owes a monument today more to hermetic heroes than to all other influences and instrumentalities. Religion accepted, combined, for our present civilization is largely a legacy from the alchemist, Begin with Hermes Trismegistus and close with Joseph Balsamo. And if you are inclined towards science, do not criticize too severely their verbal logoria and their romanticism, for your science is treading backward. It will encroach upon their field again, and you may have to unsay your words of hasty censure. These men fulfilled their mission and did it well. If they told more than men now think they knew, they also knew more than they told and more than modern philosophy embraces. They could not live to see all the future they eagerly hoped for, but they started a future for mankind that will far exceed in sweetness and light the most entrancing visions of their most imaginative dreamers. They spoke of the existence of a red elixir, and while they wrote, the barbarous world about them ran red with blood. Blood of the pure in heart, blood of the saints, blood of a savior and their allegory and wisdom formula were recorded in blood of their own sacrifices. They dreamed of a white elixir that is yet to bless mankind, and a brighter day for man, a period of peace, happiness, long life, contentment, goodwill, and brotherly love, and in the name of this white elixir, they directed the world towards a vision of divine light. Even pure gold, as they told the materialistic world who worship gold, was penetrated and whelmed by this subtle, superlatively refined spirit of matter. Is not the day of the allegorical white elixir nearly at hand? Would that it was. I say to you now, brothers of the 18th century, as one speaking by authority to you, seize, some of you, to study this entrancing past. Look to the future by grasping the present. Cast aside, some of you, the alchemical lore of other days. Give up your loved allegories. It is a duty. You must relinquish them. 
there is a richer field. Do not delay. Unlock this mystic door that stands hinged and ready, waiting the touch of men who can interpret the talisman. Place before mankind the knowledge that lies behind its rivets, and the secret lodges that have preserved the wisdom of the days of Enoch and Elias of Egypt, who propagated the Egyptian order, a branch of your ancient brotherhood, is to be found concealed much knowledge that should now be spread before the world, and added to the treasures of our circle of adepts. This Kabbalistic wisdom is not recorded in books nor in manuscript, but has been purposely preserved from the uninitiated, in the unreadable brains of unresponsive men. Those who are selected to act as carriers thereof are, as a rule, like dumb water-bearers, or the dead sheet of paper that mechanically preserves an inspiration derived from minds unseen. They serve a purpose, as a child mechanically commits to memory a blank verse to repeat to others, who in turn commit to repeat again, neither of them speaking understandingly. Search ye these hidden paths, for the day of mental liberation approaches, and publish to the world all that is locked within the doors of that antiquated organization. The world is nearly ripe for the wisdom faculty, and men are ready to unravel the golden threads that mystic wisdom has inwoven in her web of secret knowledge. Look for knowledge where I have indicated, and to gain it do not hesitate to swear allegiance to the sacred order. For so you must do to gain entrance to the brotherhood and then you must act what men will call the traitor. You will, however, be doing a sacred duty, for the world will profit, humanity will be the gainer. Peace on earth, goodwill to man will be closer to mankind, and at last, when the sign appears, the white elixir will no longer be allegorical. It will become a reality. In the name of the great mystic Vesman, Go thou into these lodges, learn of their secrets, and spread their treasures before those who can interpret them. Here this letter ended. It was evident that the writer referred to a secret society into which I could probably enter, and taking the advice I did not hesitate, but applied at once for membership. I determined, regardless of consequence, to follow the suggestion of the unknown writer, and by doing so, for I accepted their pledges, I invited my destiny. My guest of the massive forehead paused for a moment, stroking his long white beard, and then, after casting an inquiring glance at me, asked, Shall I read on? Yes, I replied, and the man who did it proceeded as follows. Chapter 5 The Writing of My Confession Having become a member of the secret society, as directed by the writer of the letter I have just read, and having obtained the secrets hinted at in the mystic directions, my next desire was to find a secluded spot where, without interruption, I could prepare for publication what I had gathered surreptitiously in the lodges of the fraternity I designed to betray. This I entitled, My Confession. Alas! Why did my evil genius prompt me to write it? Why did not some kind angel withhold my hand from the rash and wicked deed? All I can urge in defense or palliation is that I was infatuated by the fatal words of the letter. You must act what men will call the traitor, but humanity will be the gainer. In the section of the state in which I resided, a certain creek forms the boundary line between two townships, and also between two counties. Crossing this creek, a much-traveled road stretches east and west, uniting the extremes of the great state. 
Two villages on this road, about four miles apart, situated on opposite sides of the creek, also present themselves to my memory. And midway between them, on the north side of the road, was a substantial farmhouse. And going west from the easternmost of these villages, the traveler begins to descend from the very center of the town. In no place is the grade steep, as the road lies between the spurs of the hill abutting upon the valley that feeds the creek I have mentioned. Having reached the valley, the road winds a short distance to the right, and turning to the left crosses the stream, and immediately begins to climb the western hill. Here the ascent is more difficult, for the road lies diagonally over the edge of the hill. A mile of travel, as I recall the scene, sometimes up a steep, and again among rich, level farmlands, and then, on the very height, close to the road, within a few feet of it, appears the square structure which was, at the time I mention, known as the Stone Tavern. On the opposite side of the road were located extensive stables and a grain barn. In the northeast chamber of that stone building, during a summer in the twenties, I wrote for publication the description of the mystic work that my oath should have made forever a secret, a sacred trust. I am the man who wantonly committed the deplorable act. Under the infatuation of that alchemical manuscript, I strove to show the world that I could and would do that which might never benefit me in the least, but might serve humanity. It was fate. I was not a bad man, neither malignity, avarice, nor ambition forming a part of my nature. I was a close student of a rather retiring disposition, a stonemason by trade, careless and indifferent to public honors, and so thriftless that many trifling neighborhood debts had accumulated against me. What I have reluctantly told, for I am forbidden to give the names of the localities, comprises an abstract of part of the record of my early life and will introduce the extraordinary narrative which follows. That I have spoken the truth, and in no manner overdrawn, will be silently evidenced by hundreds of brethren, both of the occult society and the fraternal brotherhood, with which I united, who can, if they will, testify to the accuracy of the narrative. They know the story of my crime and disgrace. Only myself and God know the full retribution that followed. Chapter 6 Kidnapped The events just narrated occurred in the prime of my life, and are partly matters of publicity. My attempted breach of faith in the way of disclosing their secrets was naturally infamous in the eyes of my society brethren, who endeavored to prevail upon me to relent of my design which, after writing my confession, I made no endeavor to conceal. Their importunities and threatening had generally been resisted, however, and with an obliquity that cannot be easily explained, I persisted in my unreasonable design. I was blessed as a husband and a father, but neither the thought of home, wife, nor child checked me in my inexplicable course. I was certainly irresponsible, perhaps a monomaniac, and yet on the subject in which I was absorbed, I preserved my mental equipoise and knowingly followed a course that finally brought me into the deepest slough of trouble, and lost to me forever all that man loves most dearly. An overruling spirit, perhaps the shade of one of the old alchemists, possessed me, and in the face of obstacles that would have caused most men to reflect and retrace their steps, I madly rushed onward. The influence that impelled me, whatever it may have been, was irresistible, 
I apparently acted the part of agent, subject to an ever-present master essence, and under this dominating spirit or demon my mind was powerless in its subjection. My soul was driven imperiously by that impelling and indescribable something, and was as passive and irresponsible as, like a podium, that is borne onward in a steady current of air. Methods were vainly sought by those who loved me, brethren of the lodge, and others who endeavored to induce me to change my headstrong purpose. But I could neither accept their counsels nor heed their forebodings. Summons by law were served on me in order to disconcert me, and my numerous small debts became the pretext for legal warrants, until at last all my papers, excepting my confession, and my person also, were seized, upon an execution served by a constable. Minor claims were quickly satisfied, but when I regained my liberty, the aggression continued. Even arson was resorted to, and the printing office that held my manuscript was fired one night, that the obnoxious revelation which I persisted in putting into print might be destroyed. Finally, I found myself separated by process of law from home and friends, an inmate of a jail. My opponents, as I now came to consider them, had confined me in a prison for a debt of only two dollars, a sufficient amount at that time in that state for my incarceration. Smarting under the humiliation, my spirit became still more rebellious, and I now perhaps justly came to view myself as a martyr. It had been at first asserted that I had stolen a shirt, but I was not afraid of any penalty that could be laid on me for this trumped-up charge believing that the imputation and the arrest would be shown to be designed as willful oppression. Therefore, it was that when this contemptible arraignment had been swept aside, and I was freed before a justice of the peace, I experienced more than a little surprise at the rearest, and at finding myself again thrown into jail. I knew that it had been decreed by my brethren that I must retract and destroy my confession, and this fact made me the more determined to prevent its destruction and I persisted sullenly in pursuing my course. On the evening of August 12, 1826, my jailer's wife informed me that the debt for which I had been incarcerated had been paid by unknown friends, and that I could depart. And I accepted the statement without question. Upon my stepping from the door of the jail, however, my arms were firmly grasped by two persons, one on each side of me, and before I could realize it, I was being kidnapped. I was thrust into a closed coach, which immediately rolled away, but not until I made an outcry which, if heard by anyone, was unheeded. For your own sake, be quiet, said one of my companions in confinement, for the carriage was draped to exclude the light and was as dark as a dungeon. My spirit rebelled. I felt that I was on the brink of a remarkable, perhaps perilous experience, and I indignantly replied by asking, what have I done that you should presume forcibly to imprison me? Am I not a free man of America? What have you done? he answered. Have you not bound yourself by a series of vows that are sacred and should be inviolable, and have not just broken them, as no other man has done before you? Have you not betrayed your trust and merited a severe judgment? Did you not voluntarily ask admission into our ancient brotherhood, and in good faith were you not initiated into our sacred mysteries? Did you not obligate yourself before man, and on your sacred honor promise to preserve our secrets? I did, I replied. But previously I had sworn before a higher tribunal to scatter this precious wisdom to the world. Yes, he said. 
and you now know full well the depth of the self-sought solemn oath that you took with us, more solemn than that prescribed by any open court on earth. This I do not deny, I said, and yet I am glad that I accomplished my object, even though you have now, as is evident, the power to pronounce my sentence. You should look for the death sentence, was the reply, but it has been ordained instead that you are to be given a lengthened life. You should expect bodily destruction, but on the contrary, you will pass on in consciousness of earth and earthly concerns when we are gone. Your name will be known to all lands, and yet from this time you will be unknown. For the welfare of future humanity, you will be thrust to a height in our order that will annihilate you as a mortal being, and yet you will exist, suspended between life and death, and in that intermediate state you will know that you exist. You have, as you confess, merited a severe punishment, but we can only punish in accordance with an unwritten law that instructs the person punished and elevates the human race in consequence. You stand alone among mortals in that you have openly attempted to give broadly to those who have not earned it our most sacred property, a property that did not belong to you, property that you have not only been permitted to handle, that has been handed from man to man from before the time of Solomon, and which belongs to no one man, and will continue to pass in this way from one to another as a hallowed trust until there are no men, as men now exist, to receive it. You will soon go into the shadows of darkness, and will learn many of the mysteries of life, the undeveloped mysteries that are withheld from your fellows, but which you, who have been so presumptuous and anxious for knowledge, are destined to possess and solve. You will find secrets that man, as man is now constituted, cannot yet discover, and yet which the future man must gain and be instructed in. As you have sowed, so shall you reap. You wished to become a distributor of knowledge. You shall now by bodily trial and mental suffering obtain unsought knowledge to distribute, and in time to come you will be commanded to make your discoveries known. As your pathways surely laid out, so must you walk. It is ordained. To rebel is useless. Who has pronounced this sentence? I asked. A judge, neither of heaven nor of earth. You speak in enigmas. No, I speak openly, and the truth. Our brotherhood is linked with the past and clasps hands with the antediluvians. The flood scattered the races of earth, but did not disturb our secrets. The great love of wisdom has from generation to generation led selected members of our organization to depths of study that our open work does not touch upon, and behind our highest officers there stand, in the occult shades between the here and the hereafter, unknown and unseen agents who are initiated into secrets above and beyond those known to the ordinary craft. Those who are introduced into these inner recesses acquire superhuman conceptions and do not give an open sign of fellowship. They need no talisman. They walk our streets possessed of powers unknown to men. They concern themselves as mortals in the affairs of men, and even their brethren of the initiated, open order, are unaware of their exalted condition. The means by which they have been instructed, their several individualities as well, have been concealed, because publicly would destroy their value and injure humanity's cause. Silence followed these vague disclosures, and the carriage rolled on. I was mystified and alarmed, and yet I knew that, whatever plight be the end of this nocturnal ride, I had invited it, 
yes, merited it, and I steeled myself to hear the sentence of my judges, in whose hands I was powerless. The persons on the seat opposite me continued their conversation in low tones, audible only to themselves. An individual by my side neither moved nor spoke. There were four of us in the carriage, as I learned intuitively, although we were surrounded by utter darkness. At length I addressed the companion beside me, for the silence was unbearable. Friend or enemy though he might be, anything rather than this long silence. How shall we continue in this carriage? He made no reply. After a time I spoke again. Can you not tell me, comrade, how long our journey will last? When shall we reach our destination? Silence only. Putting out my hand, I ventured to touch my mate and found that he was tightly strapped, bound upright to the seat and the back of the carriage. Leather thongs held him firmly in position, and as I pondered over the mystery, I thought to myself, if I make a disturbance, they will not hesitate to manacle me as securely. My custodians seemed, however, not to exercise a guard over me, and yet I felt that they were certain of my inability to escape. If the man on the seat was a prisoner, why was he so reticent? Why did he not answer my questions? I came to the conclusion that he must be gagged as well as bound. Then I determined to find out if this were so. I began to realize more forcibly that a terrible sentence must have been meted me, and I half hoped that I could get from my partner in captivity some information regarding our destination. Sliding my hand cautiously along his chest and under his chin, I intended to remove the gag from his mouth. When I felt my flesh creep, for it came in contact with the cold, rigid flesh of a corpse, the man was dead and stiff. The shock unnerved me. I began to experience the results of a severe mental strain partly induced by the recent imprisonment and extended previous persecution, and partly by the mysterious significance of the language in which I had recently been addressed. The sentence. You will now go into the valley of the shadow of death and learn the mysteries of life, kept ringing through my head, and even then I sat beside a corpse. After this discovery, I remained for a time in a semi-stupor in a state of profound dejection. How long, I cannot say. Then I experienced an inexplicable change, such as imagine comes over a condemned man without hope of reprieve. And I became unconcerned as a man might who had accepted his destiny and stoically determined to await it. Perhaps moments passed, it may have been hours, and then indifference gave place to reviving curiosity. I realized that I could die only once, and I coolly and complacently revolved the matter, speculating over my possible fate. As I look back on the night in which I rode beside that dead man facing the mysterious agents of an all-powerful judge, I marvel over a mental condition that permitted me finally to rest in peace and slumber in unconcern. So I did, however, and after a period the length of which I am not able to estimate, I awoke, and soon thereafter the carriage stopped and our horses were changed, after which our journey was resumed to continue hour after hour, and at last I slept again, leaning back in the corner. Suddenly I was violently shaken from slumber, and commanded to alight. It was in the grey of morning, and before I could realize what was happening I was transferred by my captors to another carriage, 
and the dead man also was rudely hustled along and thrust beside me, my companion speaking to him as though he were alive. Indeed, as I look back on these maneuvers, I perceive that, to all appearances, I was one of the abducting party, and our actions were really such as to induce an observer to believe that this dead man was an obstinate prisoner, and myself one of his official guards. The drivers of the carriages seemed to give us no attention, but they sat upright and unconcerned, and certainly neither of them interested himself in our transfer. The second carriage, like that other previously described, was securely closed, and our journey was continued. The darkness was of a dungeon. It may have been days. I could not tell anything about the passage of time. On and on we rode. Occasionally, food and drink were handed in, but my captors held to their course. And at last, I was taken from the vehicle and transferred to a blockhouse. I had been carried rapidly and in secret a hundred or more miles, perhaps into another state, and probably all traces of my journey were effectually lost to outsiders. I was in the hands of men who implicitly obeyed the orders of their superiors, masters whom they had never seen, and probably did not know. I needed no reminder of the fact that I had violated every sacred pledge voluntarily made to the craft, and now that they held me powerless, I well knew that... Whatever the punishment assigned, I had invited it, and could not prevent its fulfillment. That it would be severe, I realized. That it would not be in accordance with ordinary human law, I accepted. Had I not, in secret, in my little room in that obscure stone tavern, engrossed on paper the mystic sentences that never before had been penned, and were unknown excepting to persons initiated into our sacred mysteries, had I not previously, in the most solemn manner before these words had been imparted to my keeping, sworn to keep them inviolate and secret, and had I not deliberately broken that sacred vow and scattered the hoarded sentences broadcast, my part as a brother in this fraternal organization was that of the holder only of property that belonged to no man, that had been handed from one to another through the ages sacredly cherished and faithfully protected by men of many tongues, always considered a trust, a charge of honor, and never before betrayed. My crime was deep and dark. I shuddered. Come what may, I mused, reflecting over my perfidy. I am ready for the penalty, and my fate is deserved. It cannot but be a righteous one. The words of the occupant of the carriage occurred to me again and again. That one sentence kept ringing in my brain. I cannot dismiss it. You have been tried, convicted, and we are of those appointed to carry out the sentence of the judges. The black silence of my lonely cell beat against me. I could feel the absence of sound. I could feel the dismal weight of nothingness. And in my solitude and distraction, I cried out in anguish to the invisible judge. I am ready for my sentence, whether it be death or imprisonment for life. And still the further words of the occupant of the carriage passed through my mind. You will now go into the valley of the shadow of death and will learn the mysteries of life. Then I slept to awake and sleep again. I kept no note of time. It may have been days or weeks so far as my record could determine. An attendant came at intervals to minister to my wants, always masked completely, ever silent. That I was not entirely separated from mankind, however, I felt assured, for occasionally sounds of voices came to me from without. Once I ventured to shout aloud, hoping to attract attention. 
but the persons whom I felt assured overheard me, paid no attention to my lonely cry. At last, one night, my door opened abruptly, and three men entered. Do not fear, said their spokesman. We aim to protect you. Keep still, and soon you will be a free man. I consented quietly to accompany them, for to refuse would have been in vain, and I was conducted to a boat, which I found contained a corpse, the one I had journeyed with, I suppose, and embarking, we were silently rowed to the middle of the river, our course being diagonally from the shore, and the dead man was thrown overboard. Then our boat returned to the desolate bank. Thrusting me into a carriage that, on our return to the river bank we found awaiting us, my captors gave a signal, and I was driven away in the darkness as silently as before, and our journey was continued, I believe, for fully two days. I was again confined in another log cabin, but with one door and destitute of windows. My attendants were masked. They neither spoke to me, as they day after day supplied my wants, nor did they information on any subject, until at last I abandoned all hope of ever regaining my liberty. Chapter 7 A Wild Night I am prematurely aged. In the depths of night, I was awakened by a noise made by the opening of a door, and one by one seven masked figures silently stalked into my prison. Each bore a lighted torch and they passed me as I lay on the floor in my clothes, for I had no bedding, and ranged themselves in a line. I arose and seated myself as directed to do, upon the only stool in the room. Swinging into a semicircle, the weird line wound about me, and from the one seat on which I rested in the center of the room, I gazed successively upon seven pairs of gleaming eyes, each pair directed at myself, and as I turned from one to another, the black cowl of each deepened into darkness, and grew more hideous. Men or devils, I cried, do your worst. Make me, if such is your will, as that sunken corpse beside which I was once seated. But seize your persecutions. I have atoned for my indiscretions a thousandfold, and this suspense is unbearable. I demand to know what is to be my doom, and I desire its fulfillment. And one stepped forward, facing me squarely. The others closed together around him and me. Raising his forefinger, he pointed it close to my face, and as his sharp eyes glittered from behind the black mask piercing through me, he slowly said, Why do you not say brothers? Horrible, I rejoined. Stop this mockery. Have I not suffered enough from your persecutions to make me reject that word as applied to yourselves? You can but murder, do your duty to your unseen masters, and end this prolonged torture. Brother, said the spokesman, you well know that the sacred rules of our order will not permit us to murder any human being. We exist to benefit humanity, to lead the wayward back across the burning desert into the pathways of the righteous. Not to destroy or persecute a brother. Ours is an elemosinary institution, instructing its members, helping them to seek happiness. You are now expiating the crime you have committed, and the good in your spirit rightfully revolts against the bad, for in divulging to the world our mystic signs and brotherly greetings, you have sinned against yourself more than against others. The sting of conscience, the biting of remorse punishes you. True, I cried, as the full significance of what he said burst upon me. Too true. 
but I bitterly repent my treachery. Others can never know how my soul is harrowed by the recollection of the enormity of that breach of confidence. In spite of my open, careless, or defiant bearing, my heart is humble, and my spirit cries out for mercy. By night and by day I have in secret cursed myself for heeding an unhallowed mandate, and I have long looked forward to the judgment that I should suffer for my perfidy, for I have appreciated that the day of reckoning would surely appear. I do not rebel, and I recall my wild language. I recant my confession. I renounce myself. I say to you in all sincerity, brothers, do your duty. Only I beg of you to slay me at once and end my suspense. I await my doom. What might it be? Grasping my hand, the leader said, You are ready as a member of our order. We can now judge you as we have been commanded. Had you persisted in calling us devils in your mistaken frenzy, we should have been forced to reason with you until you returned again to us and became one of us. Our judgment is for you only. The world must not now know its nature, at least so far as we are concerned. Those you see here are not your judges. We are agents sent to labor with you, to draw you back into our ranks, to bring you into a condition that will enable you to carry out the sentence that you have drawn upon yourself. For you must be your own doomsman. In the first place, we are directed to gain your voluntary consent to leave this locality. You can no longer take part in affairs that interested you before. To the people of the state and to your home and kindred, you must become a stranger for all time. Do you consent? Yes, I answered, for I knew that I must acquiesce. In the next place, you must help us to remove all traces of your identity. You must, so far as the world is concerned, leave your body where you have apparently been drowned, for a world's benefit, a harmless mockery to deceive the people and also to make an example for others that are weak. Are you ready? Yes. Then remove your clothing and replace it with this suit. I obeyed, and changing my garments, receiving others in turn. One of the party then, taking from beneath his gown a box containing several bottles of liquids, proceeded artfully to mix and compound them, and then to paint my face with a combination, which after being mixed formed a clear solution. Do not fear to wash, said the spokesman. The effect of this lotion is permanent enough to stay until you are well out of this state. I passed my hand over my face. It was drawn into wrinkles as a film of gelatin might have been shriveled under the influence of a strong tannin or a stringent liquid. Beneath my fingers it felt like the furrowed face of a very old man. But I experienced no pain. I vainly tried to smooth the wrinkles. Immediately upon removing the pressure of my hand, the furrows reappeared. Next, another applied a colorless liquid freely to my hair and beard. He rubbed it well and afterward wiped it dry with a towel. A mirror was thrust beneath my gaze. I started back. The transformation was complete. My appearance had entirely changed. My face had become aged and wrinkled, my hair as white as snow. I cried aloud in amazement. Am I sane? Is this a dream? It is not a dream. But under the methods that are in exact accordance with natural physiological laws, we have enabled to transform your appearance from that of one in the prime of manhood into the semblance of an old man, and that too without impairment of your vitality. Another of the masked men opened a curious little casket that I was perceived was surmounted by an alembic and other alchemical figures, and embossed with an oriental design. 
he drew from it a lamp which he lighted with a taper. The flame that resulted first pale blue, then yellow, next violet, and finally red, seemed to become more weird and ghastly with each mutation, as I gazed spellbound upon its fantastic changes. Then after these transformations it burned steadily with the final strange blood-red hue, and he now held over the blaze a tiny cup, which in a few moments commenced to sputter and then smoked, exhaling a curious, apoplic, semi-luminous vapor. I was commanded to inhale the vapor. I hesitated. The thought rushed upon me. Now I am another person so cleverly disguised that even my own friends would perhaps not know me. This vapor is designed to suffocate me, and my body, if found, will not now be known, and could not be identified when discovered. Do not fear, said the spokesman, as if divining my thought. There is no danger. And at once I realized by quick reasoning that if my death were demanded, my body might long since have been easily destroyed, and all this ceremony would have been unnecessary. I hesitated no longer, and drew into my lungs the vapor that arose from the mysterious cup, freely expanding my chest several times, and then asked, Is not that enough? Despair now overcame me, my voice, no longer the full strong tone of a man in middle life and perfect strength, squeaked and quavered, as if impaired by palsy. I had seen my image in a mirror, an old man with wrinkled face and white hair. I now heard myself speak with the voice of an octogenarian. What have you done? I cried. We have obeyed your orders. You told us you are ready to leave your own self here, and the work is complete. The man who entered has disappeared. If you should now stand in the streets of your village home and cry to your former friends, it is I whom you speak. They would smile and call you a madman. No, continued the voice, that there is in Eastern metaphysical lore more true philosophy than is embodied in the sciences of today, and that by means of the ramifications of our order it becomes possible, when necessary for him who stands beyond the inner and upper worshipful master, to draw these treasures from the occult wisdom, possessions of Oriental sages, who forget nothing and lose nothing. Have we not been permitted to do his bidding well? Yes. I squeaked, and I wish that you had done it better. I wish that I were dead. When the time comes, if necessary, your dead body will be fished from the water, was the reply. Witnesses have seen the drowning tragedy and will surely identify the corpse. And may I go? Am I free now? I asked. Ah, said he, that is not for us to say our part of the work is fulfilled and we can return to our native lands and resume again our several studies. So far as we are concerned, you are free, but we have been directed to pass you over to the keeping of others who will carry forward this judgment. There is another step. Tell me, I cried, once more desponding, tell me the full extent of my sentence. That is not known to us and probably is not known to any one man. So far as the members of our order are concerned, you have now vanished. When you leave our sight this night, we will also separate from one another. We shall know no more of you and your future than will those of our working order who live in this section of the country. We have no personal acquaintance with the guide that has been selected to conduct your farther, and who will appear in due season, and will make no surmise concerning the results of your journey. Only that we know that you will not be killed, 
for you have a work to perform and will continue to exist long after others of our age are dead. Farewell, brother. We have discharged our duty, and by your consent now we must return to our various pursuits. In a short time all evidence of your unfortunate mistake, the crime committed by you in printing our sacred charges, will have vanished. Even now emissaries are ordained to collect and destroy the written record that tells of your weakness, and with the destruction of that testimony for every copy will surely be annihilated, and with your disappearance from among men, for this also is to follow, our responsibility for you will cease. Each of the seven men advanced and grasped my hand, giving me the grip of brotherhood, and then, without a word, they severally and silently departed into the outer darkness. As the last man disappeared, a figure entered the door, clad and masked exactly like those who had gone. He removed the long black gown in which he was enveloped, threw the mask from his face, and stood before me, a slender, graceful, bright-looking young man. By the light of the candle I saw him distinctly, and was once struck by his amiable, cheerful countenance, and my heart bounded with a sudden hope. I had temporarily forgotten the transformation that had been made in my person, which altogether painless, had left no physical sensation, and thought of myself as I had formerly existed. My soul was still my own, I imagined, my blood seemed unchanged, and must flow as rapidly as before, my strength was unaltered. Indeed, I was in self-consciousness still in the prime of life. Excuse me, father, said the stranger, but my services have been sought as a guide for the first part of a journey that I am informed you intend to take. His voice was mild and pleasant, his bearing respectful, but the peculiar manner in which he spoke convinced me that he knew that, as a guide, he must conduct me to some previously designated spot and that he proposed to do so was evident, with or without my consent. Why do you call me father? I attempted to say, but as the first few words escaped my lips, the recollection of the events of the night rushed upon me, for instead of my own I recognized the piping voice of the old man I had now become, and my tongue faltered. The sentence was unspoken. You would ask me why I call you father. I perceive, while because I am directed to be a son to you, to care for your wants, to make your journey as easy and pleasant as possible, to guide you quietly and carefully to the point that will next prove of interest to you. I stood before him a free man, in the prime of life, full of energy, and this stripling alone interposed between myself and liberty. Should I permit this slender youth to carry me away as a prisoner? Would it not be best to thrust him aside, if necessary, crush him to the earth? Go forth in my freedom? Yet I hesitated, for he might have friends outside. Probably he was not alone. There are no companions near us, said he, reading my mind. And as I do not seem formidable, it is natural you should weigh in your mind the probabilities of escape. But you cannot evade your destiny, and you must not attempt to deny yourself the pleasure of my company. You must leave this locality and leave without a regret. In order that you may acquiesce willingly, I propose that together we return to your former home, which you will, however, find no longer to be a home. I will accompany you as a companion, as your son. You may speak with one exception to whomever you care to address, may call on any of your old associates, may assert openly who you are, or whatever and whoever you please to represent yourself. Only I must also have the privilege of joining in the conversation. Agreed, I cried, extended my hand, 
He grasped it, and then by the light of the candle I saw a peculiar expression flit over his face, as he added, To one person only, as I have said, and you have promised you must not speak, your wife. I bowed my head, and a flood of sorrowful reflections swept over me. Of all the world, the one whom I longed to meet, to clasp in my arms, to counsel in my distress, was the wife of my bosom, and I begged him to withdraw his cruel injunction. You should have thought of her before, now it is too late. To permit you to meet and to speak with her would be dangerous. She might pierce your disguise. Of all others, there is no fear. Must I go with you into an unknown future without a farewell kiss from my little child or from my babe scarce three months old? It has been so ordained. I threw myself on the floor and moaned. This is too hard, too hard for human heart to bear. Life has no charm to a man who is thrust from all he holds most dear home, friends, family. The men who relinquish such pleasures and such comforts are those who do the greatest good to humanity said the youth. The multitude exists to propagate the race as animal progenitors of the multitudes that are to follow, and the exceptional philanthropist is he who denies himself material bliss and punishes himself in order to work out a problem such as it has been ordained that you are to solve. Do not argue further. The line is marked and you must walk direct. Into the blaze of the old fireplace of that log house, for although it was autumn, the night was chilly. He then cast his black robe and false face, and as they turned to ashes, the last evidences of the vivid axe through which I had passed were destroyed. As I lay moaning in my utter misery, I tried to reason with myself that what I experienced was all a hallucination. I dozed and awoke startled, half-conscious only, as one in a nightmare, I said to myself, A dream, a dream, and slept again. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book, and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.